and the great American Southwest. I bid you all good evening, good afternoon, good morning, whatever the case may be, wherever you are, and all the time zones covered by this incredible radio program called Coast to Coast AM. I'm Art Bell. Glad to be here, even though I have the worst cold. Last week when I was getting off the air, Friday night, Saturday morning, I couldn't sleep, and I couldn't figure out why. Sunday I knew, you know, sore throat, typical stuff, right? Real sore throat. Then the sneezing begins. Then the spigots open, and you're drowning in a sea of snot. And it's been that way, and then, of course, it went to my chest, and that's where it is now, residing in my chest. And I've been drinking abnormally large amounts of spectrant, you know, and coughing up what appeared to be small hopefully irrelevant organs and stuff. And so that's my condition tonight. I've got a hell of a cold. In a moment, Richard C. Hoagland in the next hour. George Lutz, the Amityville George Lutz, somebody I have always wanted to interview since I've been doing this program, the original real George Lutz from the Amityville house. He's the family that moved in after the DeFeo murders the Lutz family, and they're the ones that the movie was about in the book and everything, and so tonight we'll get the real story. A couple of uh, things that are going on that are worth, uh, noteworthy, certainly, in North Korea. I wonder if Ed Dames could be right, huh? A defiant North Korea ordered U.N. nuclear inspectors out of the country Friday, said it would restart a lab capable of producing plutonium for nuclear weapons, so they're not even hiding it. But the U.N. nuclear watchdog said its inspectors were going to stay right where they are. The White House denounced the expulsions, but said that military action was not being uh, contemplated. I mean, here we have a country that has the means to build nuclear weapons, and they have just announced they're going to do it, and they're throwing out the U.N. inspectors to build nuclear weapons, and we are not contemplating military action, whereas... In Iraq, uh, we're doing more than contemplation. We've ordered a major military force to the Persian Gulf in prep for a possible war with Iraq. Why? Because of perceived weapons of mass destruction building and storing and stuff, right? So, case A, Korea, we do nothing. We don't even contemplate doing anything when they say they're doing it. Case B, where we're not sure they're even doing it, we're going to have a war. And then this, ushering in either a brave new world or a spectacular hoax, a company founded by a religious sect that believes in space aliens announced Friday, it in fact has produced the world's first cloned baby. Caesarean section, they say. Bridget Bolsier, that little French pixie that uh, heads up that organization that I've interviewed in the past when they said she conceived... Not Bridget, but the American. Came on. I did an interview with Bridget, and uh, she talked about why they were doing what they were doing, what they expected. Their expectations said they had it done. Now they say it's happened. In a moment, Richard C. Hoagland begins the oh. There is one important thing uh, that I announce, and that is this is your final opportunity. As you know, this uh, Keith Rowland and the website, www.rpl.com, where there are some new ghost photographs tonight, Christmas-type ghosts. Uh, Keith has been with me for God, years and years and years and years and years. And uh, on Tuesday, with the ending of the um, 
current year and the beginning of the next year, which we will ring in with predictions and a review of predictions made last year at the same time. But Keith, who's been with me all this time, and the Art Bell website go down forevermore. Oh, who knows, maybe someday I'll bring it back up uh, as a ham radio website or something, I don't know. You know, I, I own the, the domain, so it's going down forever, and the new website takes over. Now, you can get a commemorative set of CDs that memorialize this website and a lot of the stuff that was on it over so many years, and this is about your last chance to do so. Now, the way to do it is to go to artbell.com. You can't miss it. You know, it's your last chance. These will not be for sale after the stroke of midnight uh, or after the show. Actually, at midnight on uh, January 1st, they will go off sale. You will, will not be able to get them. Come hook or crook or whatever, you can't get them. So this is your last chance. I suggest you go to artbell.com and scarf them up between now and the beginning of the new year. Rushing toward us now, I might add. Well, okay, here comes Richard C. Hoagland, a good friend for a lot of years on this uh, program, a whole lot of years, and uh, he was at one time advisor to Walter C. Cron Cron <laughs> Cronkite, um, and he was an advisor to NASA, and he won the Engstrom Science Award, and he's been invaluable as a part of this program. He will continue to be a part of this program. And uh, he, he was the man who watched uh, with Walter as the U.S. went to the moon. So we've been to the moon, and we're contemplating a trip to Mars uh, to find out if so many things that Richard has talked about are true or not. And we've done all this, and still, we haven't conquered the damn common cold. <laughs> Maybe you could explain that one, Mr. Science. <laughs> Good evening, Art. Good evening. I've been thinking a lot about that, Richard. I mean, we've, here we are, cloning a human baby, right, if it's true. We still haven't conquered the cold. Well, there are some things, but one has to take them very early. It's the first sign. I thought I was coming down with one a couple of days ago, and I took something called oxalococcinum, which is a uh, uh, naturopathic remedy. I don't, know I, I, don't, I don't know if I believe in all that, Richard. I mean, yeah, you didn't come down with it, but maybe, the, with maybe it. the answer is you weren't really coming down with it. When well, it, it had all the symptoms. Yeah, well, yeah. Well, we don't want to bore people with our symptoms, do Not, we? Um, well, I do want to know about the why we haven't done anything about the. Well, you're saying we have, but I'm saying we have. You just have to look in the right places. Okay. <laughs> I'm sorry you feel bad. That's that's all right. Sure. You know, it's, it's bizarre. I I, I I was thinking all day after you called me and said do you want to do something tonight, and yeah. I thought, what the heck are we going to talk about? Well, we're about. You know, I mean, it's um, time is short because. Well, we've hit all the specifics. Everybody knows the, the landscape. What I wanted to do in the little time we have left, since this is our last show, is to be a little more philosophical. Um, I'd like to turn the tables. I'd like to interview you on a couple of things. Oh, jeez. <laughs> yeah, all right, fine. Okay. Like, you've been at this now in this incarnation of Coast to Coast dealing with the edgy stuff, the... Yep. The things at the edge of perception, the unknowns, the, the things we haven't nailed down, the things the mainstream says are crazy and kooky and other people know or not, yeah. for at least uh, 10, 15 years. Closer to 
the 15 mark. But yeah, that's right. That's right. Yes. Mm-hmm. And what I wanted to ask, and I'm sure everybody wants to know the answer, is Art, what do you think you've learned? <sighs> I've learned a lot, Richard. I mean, you used I, to be I've into learned, politics. I've learned. Oh, I'm still into politics. Well, but then I, I, you used I, I, to be heavy into yeah, politics. I used to do it on a daily basis till I got sick of it. And then you realize something there's changed. More, well, that's because I realize there's more to life than uh, the latest pol- political squabble in Washington. I mean, a- every other talk show host around the country, that's all they do. The latest bull coming out of Washington. Well, there's other things to talk about. There's other things to life. Yeah, that's what moved me to do this program. You asked me what I've learned. I've learned a lot. But what I, I, how much do I know? I don't have the answer to that one. Um, a lot of what I had thought would begin to happen, Richard, because of, you know, all the interviews and everybody I was exposed to, you and many others, um, a lot of that has begun to come true now. So I'm seeing a lot of what I concluded through what I learned beginning to manifest itself now in the world. But what I really know, absolutely, very little, still. What I really know, uh, I, 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 I just see a lot coming true that I thought would occur. I don't know. That's not a good answer. It's the best I can do. So you've connected dots. Sure. Things that you suspected might be possible, you think now are more possible? That's, uh, well, I, no, I think beyond that. I think a lot of the things that I learned um led me to believe that certain things would begin to occur in the world and they are well underway richard well you've written two books yep you know one with whitley and and you know a couple on your own yep actually three um actually four the art of talk the source the quickening and the coming global ah, okay. superstar and obviously to write a book you've got to do your homework yep a lot of work in terms of the the global climate thing it's underway you definitely believe, as I do, it's underway. Yeah. Yeah, I went on the NBC Today show and got laughed at and poked at by Matt Lauer. And uh, then one day, a year later, I got to poke back. And uh, that, uh, that little nonsense aside, the fact of the matter is, anybody who doesn't know the climate change is underway simply isn't watching. Well, what's interesting is it's climate change not just on the Earth, but as you and I have done shows, there's climate change on Mars. You bet. You may not be aware that there's climate change on Pluto, on the satellites of the outer planets. There is a general warming occurring all over the solar system. Now that is interesting. And the mainstream guys haven't a clue. Oh, now you're on to something, Richard. A general warming going on all over the solar system. You're the first one to say that. In other words, I understand that climate changes on planets Mm -hmm. and that there are cyclical things that occur. We all know that. That's a big argument we have here about whether our man's hand is involved in that or it's just a normal cyclical change. But you're telling me a warming is underway all over the solar system. Now that's news. Now in terms of things you've learned, you and I have discussed endlessly the, the Mars data that we've been probing. Yes and the physics that we think we have discerned from that data, yes, and the predictions that physics makes. And we've talked on this program many times about the connection between the physics and the global climate models that you and Whitley wrote about. Well, what's fascinating to me is to tie in the climate change that Malin is reporting on Mars with the melting of the CO2 ice caps of the South Pole, at a rate which is phenomenal. I mean, in a few hundred years, if, if the melting that they're seeing in these images 
from year to year uh, keeps going, there'll be no ice cap left, no solid carbon dioxide ice cap. Well, I was certainly aware of the um, uh, the warming on Mars. I'd read a number of stories about that, Richard, but uh, I didn't know about the other planets. Well, a few years ago, I mean, we, we have Hubble in orbit, and it can take images of, you know, everything in our backyard. They don't do it very often. But it's very difficult to get data, even with Hubble, on Pluto. Pluto, as you know, it's is way out there. Way out there. It's four billion plus miles. It's uh, actually it's it comes inside the orbit of Neptune for a period of time, and then it, it it goes back out. It's a very elliptical orbit, tilted very very significantly to the rest of the planet. Yeah, well, the planet. it's way out there. What evidence do we have? There's warming on Pluto. Well, a few years ago, the only way they can really discern climate on Pluto is by watching it pass in front of a star. And what they do is they send teams to various islands or little tiny parts of continents where the shadow of the star, it's, it's, it's basically a stellar eclipse. And they do spectral, spectral photography, I you, suppose. Well, you do photometry is actually mm, what it is. Yeah. What you're doing is you're watching how the star disappears as the planet overtakes it and then watch what happens when it reappears. Uh, on Earth, more familiarly, when you watch a bright star go behind the moon, there are some scientific things that you can discern about the moon. For instance, this was one of the early ways that astronomers realized that the moon had essentially no atmosphere. If the moon had an atmosphere, Art, and a star went behind it, you would see the star twinkle yeah. just before it disappeared because of the heat burblings of the lower atmosphere, even on, on a relatively low-gravity world like the moon. Right. Well, there's basically no twinkle, so we know there's an upper limit on the atmosphere of the moon, which is like one one millionth or something of the Earth's atmosphere. Well, mm. when Pluto, a few years ago, went in front of a fairly bright star... They got a good look. They got a good look at the twinkle of the star going in and coming out, you know, ingressing and egressing. And, 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 and of course, they spectrally read uh, then what Pluto well, was doing. Well, what you can do is you can map the twinkles to models of how planetary atmospheres will affect starlight. So was it twinkle, twinkle, little glo global warming, or what? Well, it was twinkle, twinkle, Mars had a nice, uh, Mars, uh, Pluto had a nice, fluffy atmosphere for something so distant and so cold. Well, isn't that interesting? But it was inside the orbit of Neptune, so it was expected, because it was closer than the uh, uh, eighth planet. And its atmosphere is mostly, you know, carbon monoxide and, and uh, nitrogen and uh, methane, things that warm up at very, very cold temperatures and they're still gaseous. Well, a few weeks ago, there was another opportunity, and Pluto went in front of another set of stars, mm -hmm. and they recorded those observations. Now, Pluto has been receding from the sun. It is now beyond Neptune, moving out to its farthest point from the sun, and when a planet moves that far away from the sun, it gets a lot colder because out there, the sun is almost like a bright star. It right. is so damn dim. Right. I mean, four billion miles. That's uh, So if we were out on Pluto looking back at uh, good old Sol, It ours. would be a brilliant star, but it would, it would absolutely, it would chill your bones because it's, it's liquid nitrogen temperatures three, four hundred degrees below zero mm -hmm. on a sunny day. All right? What was bizarre about the observations are is that even though Pluto was moving away and should be a lot colder, it's warmer. Warmer. The occultation of this star showed the atmosphere was fluffier, 
There was more activity. Yeah, how could that be? Now, exactly. All right. The, the you know, question. first jump I would make, Richard, I mean, the only common thread locally would be what? The sun. The sun um, getting hotter, the sun exactly. getting brighter, the sun changing in some way, causing changes in all the planets that it shares relative space with. That's what, that, you know, the first dummy talk show. Yeah, yeah, right. The problem with that is it ain't happening. The sun is doing exactly, except for the sunspot cycle, which is very, very minor. The sun is is radiating exactly as much heat and light as it always has. Mm. It's not getting brighter. It's not, you know, being an expanding variable. It's not doing any of the weird stuff that would cause these progressive changes warming all over the solar system, hmm. from Earth all the way out to Pluto. Well, what other commonality is there, Richard? <laughs> it's the hyperdimensional model. I mean, you you and, and Witt touched on it when you talked about cyclic changes. Yes. That instead of global warming on Earth being due to civilization and technology and burning of fossil fuels, there may be long-term intrinsic changes in climate, but that's really not answering the question. It merely says it's nature, but it doesn't explain what nature does. What we've been trying to do is to apply this physics to these changes and predict that, in fact, these changes are due to a general change in the energy pass-through, if I can use that word, of the whole solar system, and that this is being triggered by the movements in the model of unseen planets far beyond Pluto that have not been generally discovered or acknowledged yet. But they will be. That's part of, I mean, I know it's not Tuesday night and Tuesday are, night. Are you talking about, uh, you're not talking about what people popularly call Planet X, are you? No. Well, maybe. Might. Maybe. It, it, it might be a mistake, a case of mistaken identity, because in our model, there has to be at least one probably two more big guys out beyond Pluto mm -hmm. orbiting the sun to account for a lot of other factors that we've published on our website, enterprisemission.com. Well, there does seem to be mainstream evidence that there is something out there. They think a large planet or a burned-out sun or something. From several years of observations, they've looked at comets. There's this peculiar pattern of comets that appear to be triggered to come into the inner solar system on a periodic basis, and they're attributing that to some relatively massive object out there. Well, we're saying that there are two, and the way the physics works are is that when you get planets in phase, meaning at certain angles, the energy goes up. When planets are out of phase, meaning at other angles, the energy goes down. The planets that we're not even seeing are getting in phase, which changes the amount of energy that comes through the solar system. Is it related to momentum, Richard? It is. It's called angular momentum. It's related to the underlying reality of physics, which is that things are not static. They're actually in flux. They're actually vibrating. There's actually a resonant phenomenon. Things are... We can speak of waves. We can speak of invisible waves in the ether. Yes. And these tend to connect us to a higher set of dimensions. People would say... You can't have invisible waves in the ether. But then, <laughs> well, of course, they're sitting there listening to their radio right now. And, and do you see? Invisible, yes. And uh, do you see any beam coming into your radio? <laughs> no. Very good. Well. Anyway, so yes, you and Wit are onto something. Not only is the global warming taking place on this planet, but we now know it's taking place all over the solar system. 
And that, of course, means since the sun is not changing visibly, what has to be doing it is something that is not in the mainstream textbooks. All right. Hold it right there, Richard. We're at the uh, bottom of the hour. So the angular momentum of something sort of almost unseen out there is doing all of this. And it's getting warmer everywhere. From the high deserts, I'm Art Bell. Kingdom of Nye from west of the Rockies, dial 1-800-618-8255. East of the Rockies, 1-800-825-5033. First-time callers may reach Art at 1-775-727-1222 or use the wild card line at 1-775-727-1295. To reach Art on the toll-free international line, call your AT&T operator and have them dial 800-893-0903. Evening or morning or whatever, everybody. Richard C. Hoagland is here. I want to remind you, Tuesday is coming. Will be the last for me. During that program, we will extract from the Bell Family Vault the predictions you all made last year. We will take new ones for next year. And who knows, if they invite me back, I'll review them with you. And uh, we'll take yet more. So this really isn't goodbye. Bear that in mind. It's just sort of au revoir. And I'll hand it over to George, and then from time to time, I will be back. So it's not really goodbye. It's just sort of a real serious hiatus. <laughs> Stay right there, and we'll be right back. Once again, Richard uh, C. Hoagland from the mountains of New Mexico. Richard, welcome back. The snowy mountains of New Mexico. Yeah, I bet. Hey, uh, there's another one on the way, and uh, I understand they had, you know, like 70-mile-an-hour winds up in the coast of Oregon, California, up there, Washington, I don't know. Um, Hyperdimensional weather. Yeah, the, <laughs> the weather is very serious, and it's not going to get better. It's going to get worse. It's going to get more extreme. Yeah. And that is, you can take that to the bank, so plan accordingly. Okay, continuing with our interview, Art. <laughs> sure. 
In terms of our our work, um, what do you think you've, you've learned? Well, uh, Richard, you know, a lot of times, no, not a lot of times, but sometimes uh, when you and I did programs together, you would uh, bring photographs, zillions of photographs to me, and I would look at them and I'd say, this guy's out of his tree. <laughs> you know, these damn things are rocks. And then on several occasions, um, you would present me with photographic evidence that I think even a complete idiot couldn't miss. And, and for example, the latest one, what, what I call the city, is inescapably true. Um, so, Richard, uh, you have amazed me. Sometimes you've driven me nuts. Uh, sometimes you have, um, I, I thought you were just flat wrong. And then sometimes you have just absolutely set me back on my butt. You know, to the point where there was no, it, it was undeniable. There was a city, there is a city below the surface on Mars. There is a city. And, so and I've nobody, done my job. Nobody who looks at that can deny it. I'm sorry? So I've done my job. Oh, I guess you have, yeah. Well, you know, it only takes one white crow, Art, to prove that all crows aren't black. That's true. And out of all the photos, you know, if even one rings your chimes, yeah. I won't say Bill. Yeah, you know, you found the crow. Um, if even one is inexplicably bizarre to the point where it demands more answers, we have done our job. Do you know that that set of images, that infrared image that was released to us under the most bizarre circumstances this summer, has elicited more over-the-top reaction from our enemies probably than anything that we've been involved in since 1998, when you well, I went not, some... Yeah, I'm not surprised, Richard. That is over. It's way over the top. I mean, it's a damn city. Of course, it elicited a lot of reaction. Well, it should. And oddly enough, I think in in in, in, a, in a strange way, and I'm going to move into the next area of this with a, with a segue that I hope you'll appreciate. I think it can potentially begin to help us understand why we are moving hell bent for leather war with one nation on this planet when, as you pointed out a moment ago, there's another nation half a world away which has got them, is making them and bragging about them. And, and throwing out the inspectors. Yeah, that's right. We're not even contemplating military action while we build up ready to tear into Iraq on the, on the, on the possibility that they might have yep. them. I now, mean, the whole the thing doesn't make sense. Here's the segue. Apart from the hard data that we presented, what are your thoughts on the ritual model that we've been talking about for years? I've always had a big problem with that, Richard. Well, tell me why. The ritual aspect of it. I, 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 in other words, I'll go this far, Richard. I think that there is a connection uh, to ancient Egypt, but I don't think it's as complex connection as you have drawn over the years um, remember old navy of course <laughs> how could we ever forget? you know some pretty wild episodes uh, so so i think there, there there's some sort of connection when you look at what's on mars and you look at egypt and you don't see similarities well then you're not looking okay uh so i go that far but you know you drew some cases where we launched on certain dates because of ritual uh, connections and all the rest of it, and I, I don't know that I bought off on that. You asked, I'm telling. No, no, I absolutely want you to tell it the way it is. Yeah, well, I'm doing it. 
Well, all right. Um, the Egypt connection to me is striking and, to, and was totally surprising, not to the extent that the resemblance of the stuff on Mars looks like the stuff in Egypt, but that there appears to be a group of, of folks, guys, who are ritualistically following an ancient religion yeah. that was attached to the stuff in Egypt. That, to me, that has surprised the hell out of me. And the more I have burrowed into this, the more I probed, the more surprised and astonished I have become, because this is supposed to be the 21st century. This is supposed to be, you know, people looking at things and behaving scientifically, not according to an ancient, ancient religion. And yet that's what the pattern, we talked about pattern recognition early in the program, that's what it's all about. Well, Richard, uh, with regard to ancient religion, yes, there probably was one. I think the Egyptians knew things, perhaps through some sort of religion that may have been formed around it or may have been the basis of it, who knows, that we still don't know, things that we have not yet learned again, things that may be contained in a library under the Sphinx or somewhere else on the planet, I'll be damned if I know, but, yeah, they, they knew something that we don't know again yet. Meaning they had access to carefully preserved records of some sort. Yes, and I think they had uh, they, uh, the ability to manipulate some sort of physics that we yet have not deciphered. Okay, well, that brings up, of course, the question of the pyramids. Yes. And have you found your piece yet? Hmm. <laughs> no, you know, Richard, I have not. And I've got I, to. And I tore drawers open. Oh. I mean, obviously it's here somewhere, but Richard, in the years that I've been in this wonderful home with my beautiful wife, we have accumulated, well, once we had a garage in which we could spaciously park our two beautiful cars, <laughs> uh, it is now to the point where uh, the, the cars... Uh, you have to manipulate them extremely careful, carefully while going into the garage, lest you hit what is now occupying the garage, which is almost, you know, half of everything we've had. I mean, it's unbelievable how much we've accumulated. I cannot bring myself to throw things away. It is here, Richard, but I don't know where. And then when, I, when I'm retired and I have time to go through all of this stuff, I'll find it. That means you're starting Tuesday, right? Well, um, maybe, <laughs> maybe Wednesday. You start a museum. <laughs> yeah, no kidding. Okay. Anyway, back to the the Egypt thing because if if there is a piece of technology that's inexplicable, and we've described what that piece did and with the radium watch and all that, it should be noted, by the way, that the piece that I got and you know how I got it, yes. I did not personally bring it out of Egypt. Do you hear that, Zahi? I did not do it. <laughs> and, and Richard, there were other pieces that came out of Egypt, uh, so the one I have is not the only one. That's right. In fact, after we did our last show, uh, some folks uh, emailed me and offered me pieces of what they've got, and that is in, in, in process, and obviously we will report what, what happens in, in future programs. Good. But getting back to the Egypt thing, were you aware that Egypt, you know, ancient Egypt had a major enemy in the same time frame? circa, you know, three, 4,000, 5,000 years ago. Yes. And it was a place called Sumer. Yes. Slash Acadia, slash Babylon, mm -hmm. the Babylonian Empire. Yes. Do you know, of course, what the capital of the Sumerians, Acadians, Babylonian Empire was, don't you? 
What was it? The current city known as Baghdad. Yes. You know that Saddam Hussein firmly believes he is the reincarnation of Nebuchadnezzar. He does, in fact, yes. And he has been doing an extraordinary program of restoring ancient sites and temples, mm -hmm. funding archaeology, rebuilding palaces and and esplanades and you know they used to talk about the glory that was Rome well this is much much more ancient this is almost to the dawn of written civilization you know Richard I hope that uh, you, you bring up a very interesting point and I hope that uh, uh, somehow Saddam has not uncovered some information about a physics that we have yet to understand and don't want to be surprised by when our bombers head over Baghdad well, this is one of the reasons I raise this, because when you, when you begin to look at the record, and I, I had a very interesting thing happen over the holidays. I, I got a book for Christmas. Uh, Mike, you know, Robin's son, gave me a, a book, a book I've actually wanted to read, and I've had time to read it, and I've actually taken the last week off, you know, and done a few other things, Christmas stuff and family stuff, and had time to read this book. It's called Bush's War by Bob Woodward. It was published this fall. And it was supposed to be the first uh, hundred days of the Bush administration. Well, after 9-11, uh, he, he changed, uh, Woodward changed the theme to look at what happened after 9-11 and the preparations for Afghanistan, et cetera, et cetera. And I, when going through this book, I have seen the most remarkable pattern, more dots which may not answer the question, why are we hell-bent for leather to go to war with Iraq, but I'm hoping it will raise questions. Do you imagine uh, that it could be possible, Richard, that we understand that they might have uncovered or be close to uncovering something uh, in Iraq that we must have and or slash must keep out of their hands? Given the secretive nature of all of this, I could not say no to that proposition. What I think is more likely is that in this coming year, I mean, you have been doing a commercial now for several months regarding the upcoming Mars opposition in August of 2003. Yes, sir. When Mars will be closer than it has been, and you keep reading that number, it's not 50,000, it's closer to 75,000 years. Either way, a long time. Well, the reason that that is important is because that number is referenced in some bizarre channelings that were done in Kentucky some 25 or 30 years ago in connection with Mars, that 75,000 years and this cyclic apparition of Mars, when it comes closer than it is at any other time, and we're not talking by a lot, we're talking by maybe half a million miles, but it's literally symbolically closer than it has been for an immense period of time. Yes. 75,000 years is three processional cycles. That's an immense amount of time. If there was a group following these rituals, following the symbolism, then this would be following their connection would be that, very, very important to them. This would be very important and what I find inexplicable in terms of mainstream reactions is how we can have a country like North Korea which is obviously led by a madman, obviously very destabilizing, obviously intent on doing some very nasty things, obviously has the technology to do it, 
is starting reactors to process more fuel so they can, you know, basically begin to, to build an assembly line for weapons. That's right. And we have absolute unequivocal proof this is going on, whereas on the other direction. We don't. In Sumer, all we have is the Shara and uh, Kimra, Kimera and mirrors of he's the bad guy, he's the bad guy, we must take him out. We must no, and, and your, your explanation, Richard, uh, is every bit as good uh, as the non-existent explanation given by our administration, which is not at all. I mean, it's we, not at we, all. Now, back when you and I lived through the Cuban Missile Crisis. That's right. And it was one hell of a crisis. R Richard, I remember, I was in the Air Force, I remember picking up the red phone and listening to the def DEFCON level, um, and the, back, the air on the back of my neck went straight up. I thought we were going to war. Well, we were. We were a hair's breadth away. away. That's right. And we now know from the meetings that McNamara and others have had with the Russians that if, if Kennedy had, had caved in to the Joint Chiefs and had invaded, the Russians had, I forget how many thousand tactical nuclear weapons in Cuba already armed and, and waiting. Not the, not the ones sitting on those missiles that we were worried about, but other, uh, other nukes that we didn't know about. Right. The warheads had already been sent. What would have happened is we would have triggered World War III instantly. Yes. And we would have incinerated civilization and we would have been back to square one. Yeah, I believe that is pretty well agreed upon by most scholars who've now had a really good look at what really did happen. I think you're right, yeah. So it was only Kennedy's careful forethought and, and, and understanding of the scope of what was at hand. So it would seem. That forestalled the most horrible tragedy that could have befallen mankind. Con contrast that with what we're doing now. Where on no pre, on, on no evidence at all. I mean, Kennedy had Stevenson go to the UN and lay out before the world the evidence of those missiles. I saw it live. Yes. We have zero evidence laid out in public that Saddam Hussein, I know, nasty bad guy that he is, rotten you know father that he is, has anything has worth anything sending our young people in to die for. That will I know. that would that would ask us to poise the world on the brink of. Oblivion when you have a billion Muslims who will look at this as basically the Crusades all over again. I'm with an you. Assault on the Islamic world. I'm with you. What could possibly be so important to I'm risk? I'm saying what... we have to look at the symbolism and this deep trail we have found that if you even if you don't believe all the pieces, and I will give you one stunning example. You know that we have connected this with the numbers. There are numbers that came coming up over and over and over again. I'm reading Bob Woodward's book, and I'm, I'm, I'm reading about the meeting between um, Bush and Putin in Crawford, Texas, uh, last fall, when Putin came over and they spent two or three days at the ranch, Yes. and Bush decided to sign a nuclear de-escalation treaty, yes. where we reduced to X number of warheads. Well, I was looking at the numbers, and I could not believe what I saw, because against all his key advisors, particularly Rumsfeld. Don Rumsfeld, his head of the Defense Department, was arguing strenuously in these NSC meetings that Woodward got the minutes of. I mean, I don't know how he did it, but he got some astonishing first-hand information as to what was going on in this critical period of, of history. Rumsfeld was arguing against going to the Soviets and, and writing a treaty. Bush says, we're going to do it, and he did it. In the treaty, it says that by 2012... 
which I thought was a fascinating date to choose. It sure is, yes. We will reduce warheads on both sides to between 1,700 and 2,200 nuclear warheads. Now, if you add those two numbers oh, yes. and divide by two, yes. you get 19. See, this is the one area where... See, I've alternated, Richard, to finish up this little interview between thinking you're full of it and you're a genius. <laughs> the number thing, I don't know, may be full of it. I'll uh, tell you what, Art. The other part of it may be genius because there sure as hell is no explanation, viable explanation, for what we're about to do with our young men and women, uh, putting them at risk for God knows what, when we've got another nation doing what we claim we're going in to cure over there, when we don't even... I mean, the whole thing is just so ludicrous, Richard. So I alternate, and I have all these years, between thinking you're full of it and you're a genius. And you're probably both, just like me. I'm full of it, and, I, you know, maybe I have my moments. So. Well, my friend, it has been a lot of fun going over this stuff with you all these years. I look forward on special occasions to doing it again. I'm glad to hear that you're not totally retiring from the field because my gut tells me in terms of prediction that 2003 is going to be one hell of a year that's going to make a lot more dots come together. Unfortunately, I don't think we're going to like the shape of some of the dots. Oh, Richard, nobody ever, ever totally retires from radio. It just doesn't happen. It just doesn't happen. But, um, uh, you know, so I'll get in. I'll, I'll make my appearances uh, every now and then, I hope. Uh, you know, if they invite me in, I'll be here. In the meantime, for all the years that I've been, that you've been with me, I, I want to thank you. And um, It's been a pleasure. It really has been a pleasure, Richard. Take care, my friend. You too. Good night. Good night. All right. Coming up in a moment. Somebody that I've wanted, I've really wanted this interview my entire career. Our Father Malachi Martin said that the Amityville house, the Amityville house from the Amityville horror, was one of the most haunted places in America. He said that on my program. In a moment, we're going to talk to the man who suffered through all of this with his family, George Lutz, from the high desert. This is Coast to Coast AM. I'm Art Bell.
in the Kingdom of Nye from west of the Rockies at 1-800-618-8255. East of the Rockies, 1-800-825-5033. First-time callers may reach Art at 1-775-727-1222. And the wild card line is open at 1-775-727-1295. To reach Art on the toll-free international line, call your AT&T operator and have them dial 800-893-0903. This is Coast to Coast AM with Art Bell from the Kingdom of Nye. It is indeed. Good morning, everybody. Well, this is an interview that during the course of my career, I'm really quite surprised I've never done before. It's almost odd that I've never done it, fortuitous that I'm about to. I saw, like everybody else, the movie, uh, The Amityville Horror. And isn't it odd that uh, the man involved in that happens to be just over the hill from me in Las Vegas. George Lee Lutz was born and raised on Long Island. His birth was any indication. It was meant to be different from the beginning. Seconds after delivery, doctors raced him into surgery and mended a large crack in his skull, one that should have killed him. His mother often said that she thought his miraculous recovery was a sign that he was destined for something special. At a very young age, George displayed a remarkable mechanical aptitude. At the age of 12, he modified a hobby kit hydroplane, adding his own custom-designed water ski jets. It was only the beginning of a lasting love for boats, canoes, rowboats, runabouts, sailboats, almost anything that would float on the water. Later, the fascination grew to include cars, and today George can remember the color, interior design, make, model of every car he's ever owned. That's a bunch. At 19... He volunteered for the Marines. <laughs> My parents were Marines, so he volunteered. Uh, and later went on to earn two degrees with honors uh, at an FAA course that, he led, that led then to a job in Boston as an air traffic controller, one of the high-stress jobs in the world. His father's death a short time later took him back to New York to run W.H. Parry, Inc., the family's land-surveying business. George, who was born and raised Methodist, who always considered himself more of a devout realist, married for the first time in 72, divorced in, in 73. Short marriage. During the process of his annulment from his first marriage, George met Father Ralph J., I believe it's uh, Pecorero, we'll get it, a Catholic priest, an ecclesiastical judge within the archdiocese of the church with whom he quickly forged a strong and lasting friendship. In 1974, after years of profitable business management and years of enthusiasm and training in the martial arts, George met Kathy Connors, who had three children from a previous marriage. A year after George and Kathy's first date, they were married, and soon they began searching for a house of their own. A nest, right? By the summer of 75, they thought they had found their dream home, which happened to turn out to be a two-and-one-half a uh, story Dutch colonial in the quaint Long Island community of Amityville. Little did they know that a legend was about to be born. In a moment, the truth, the real truth behind that legend. All right, here from Las Vegas, Nevada, just over the hill, is George Lutz. George, Hi, wel hey, welcome to the program. Thank you. God, it's great to have you. Uh, George, you're, you're not on a... Um, uh, what kind of phone are you on now? I'm on a hard line. Oh, you're on a hard line. Okay, good. I've got a bit of static tonight. Yeah, I hear that. 
I hear that. I hope it uh, doesn't get us. All right. Uh, what are you doing in Las Vegas, by the way? Uh, right now I'm repairing computers and restoring old cars. Uh-huh. Old cars, your love. Uh, it's what I enjoy the most, but I have uh, what's called fibromyalgia, so uh, there are times when I just can't do the work. I understand. Um, well, all right, George. Uh, maybe we'll investigate the possibility of another line or another telephone. It was good. I, I wonder what happened. I'm not sure. <laughs> yeah, uh, that's odd. Uh, there's no other phone line open, is there? No, not in this house. All right, let me try this uh, and reset this and see if that helps. All right, anyway, uh, George... Um, I, I, it's hard to even know where to start, except all my life, you know, I saw the movie, and all my life I've been hearing about uh, Amityville, and in fact, a man that I interviewed, who's now passed away, of course, Father Malachi Martin, said to me in the course of an interview that um, uh, the Amityville house was one of the most haunted places in all of America. This was a live interview you did with him? It certainly was, Yes. So I assume hundreds of thousands, if not millions, of people heard this. Oh, absolutely, sure. Yeah, absolutely. Of course. Uh, and I, it, I, so I'm not sure where to begin all of this with you, except I guess, you know, in the, in the bio there it said that you and Kathy had just married and you were looking for a brand new house to live in, and it's the nesting thing. You know, you get married and you get a family and you want to go and you want to find a place, you know, to have that family, and then that's what you were doing. Well, we both had homes. We we each had our own home. Oh. So we, the idea was to sell both homes and get one that we could look at as both of ours. Mm-hmm. That's uh, right. Something new and something that belonged to both of you. Well, I'm I not sure Kathy liked my house or I liked hers either. Oh. So it was one of those, let's go find something we both like. Yep. Makes sense. And she had three children. And so it really made sense to put them both up on the market, and then whichever one sold first, move into the other one, and then as soon as that was sold, hopefully we would have found another house by then, and it did work out that way. Yeah. Do you remember? Uh, do you remember how old the children were at the time? Roughly. Uh, I believe Missy was not in kindergarten yet, so she would have been like four, and then uh, Chris and Danny would have been oh. Seven and nine, I believe. Mm-hmm. Um, okay. Dude, I, I'm sorry. It's too long since I've tried to remember those things. Yeah, a long time ago. Well, you're going to be trying to remember a lot that's been now a long time ago. Hopefully, I'll do better. <laughs> so, uh, and by the way, folks, uh, George has a cold, too. We both have cold, so bear with both of us. It's, it's tough to think clearly. It's tough to do anything when you're in the middle of one of these monsters. How we've gone to the moon, done all this other stuff, now even cloned the first human, according to the Raelians, and we still can't cure the common cold, George. Doesn't make sense to me. That's pretty amazing. Yep. All right, so you went to look at the house at 112 Ocean Avenue in Amityville. Uh, all of you, I presume, or just you and Kathy? No, all of us. All, no. Even the children, huh? Yes, and we had a criteria that was we were trying to find a uh, home on the water because I had a boat then that um, right. wasn't trailerable, really. And... It was important to have the boat close by rather than travel back and forth to it since we tried to use it as much as we could. Okay, well, you knew, I presume you knew, uh, about the DeVeo massacre that uh, six people had been murdered in that house. I mean, that's a very serious thing to have occurred. Six we didn't people. know this when we first went to see the house. We knew it after the realtor told us after we toured the house. It was a pretty good price, right? Uh, the the market it had been on the market for I believe a hundred thousand or so and 
by then it had been reduced, if I remember correctly, to 90. We made an offer of 80, and they accepted it. Really? Uh, what, what do you think, uh, George, what do you think market value was for that house then, real market value? Well, it was the house was 4,000 feet. It had a, a boathouse that would take a, in easily a 36-foot boat at the time. It had a two-car garage attached to that, a, a heated pool, a full basement. Uh, my guess would be then realistically 125,000 would have been not un, yeah. unheard of. All right, then. So at some some point, you must have uh, you must have asked yourself uh, or the realtor, hey. How come, maybe after you, you know, you, you consummated the deal, uh, how come it's so cheap? Or when did you find out six people had been murdered there? Uh, after she showed it to us, and it was obvious that Kathy had fallen in love with it, and I liked it very much, uh, she said, I don't know if I should have told you this before I showed it to you uh. or after, but this is the house the DeFeos were murdered in. And we kind of looked at her like, what do you mean? And then she reminded us of the news stories that had been a year earlier and the trial that was just, I guess, in the process of starting or was going on. All right. For those who don't remember, uh, can you tell us about the DeFeo murders? I mean, this this, this DeFeo fellow said that he, I, I think at the time, he claimed that he heard voices telling him to kill his family, right? Ronald DeFeo was eventually convicted, yes, of uh killing his mom, dad, two brothers, and two sisters. And for that, he, he served while, while they were in the sleep, and while, while they were asleep. Went around with a shotgun and dispatched them, I think? Uh, it was a Marlin thirty-six caliber rifle. Yeah, okay, and uh, and he's now serving, I think, six uh, consecutive life... Consecutive life terms, um, supposedly with no possibility for parole, but a hearing comes up every year or so. I, I imagine the house had been cleaned up. There was no sign of the uh, massacre that had occurred there. Oh, no, 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 no nothing like that. They, the house showed like any house would. And, George, you're looking at it, and you're looking at the water thinking, oh, my God, yes, right? Oh, it, yeah. It's, it's, we weren't <laughs> looking for an $80,000 or $90,000 or $100,000 house, um, but we were certainly in the sixty to $70,000 range when... We considered we had two homes that sold for over forty thousand each. Yeah, yeah. And the just the fees on keeping our boat in a marina back then. Sure. Really made the the difference uh, very well as far as the money went. And I had a successful business that had been my grandfather's and my father's, so it wasn't something that. Uh, well, we went. I'll put it this way: we went to one bank. Got qualified there and got the mortgage right away. Didn't have to go around and shop for a mortgage or apply anywhere else. That's interesting. We had we walked in with a little over twenty thousand dollars down, so we ended up with a sixty thousand dollar mortgage. Did did the uh, family? Uh, you must have sat down with a family, you know, family conference at some point. Look, this horrible thing happened here. Uh, can you handle that fact? Do you love the house? Do you still want to move in? Oh sure. We asked the kids, Art, if uh, they, you know, if this was going to bother them because if it was going to be an issue. With them, then we would have certainly walked on on considering the house. They were all fine with it. Was there anything at that point? I mean, none of the children, uh, nor Kathy, nor anybody said, "Look, uh, what if it's haunted or anything like that?" I mean, that never really even entered your psyche, or did you not, even consider that? Not considered in that way. No. No. It was, you know, look, you're going to have the same bedrooms that these kids had and they were killed here. Is that going to be a problem? You know, that kind of thing. We asked them and we talked about it at length as a family. 
it wasn't a snap decision by any means. We went back and saw the house a number of times. Um, one time, Kathy and I even went down in my boat to see it from the water, see if mm -hmm. we could find it. Mm -hmm. uh, South Shore isn't always the easiest thing to get up into the little rivers and whatever and, and find a house along there. Did you uh, and Kathy have enough from your other the sale of your other houses uh, to afford the 20000 the down payment? Oh, yeah, sure. Okay. Um, are you a religious person, George? That means something different to everybody. Uh, back then, I, I think... Um, absolutely not. You know, oh. I believe in the Lord's Prayer, that kind of thing. I was a non-practicing Methodist. Uh, okay. okay. But today, what I believe is my own personal beliefs, and there are some things that I believe are pretty unshakable and have been proven to be so over the last 25 years. And Kathy? Very. I would consider Kathy very religious. Okay. Um, Kathy has a ministry that feeds thousands of people in Phoenix every year, homeless people. Uh-huh. Um... Uh, then you met uh, this, uh, and you're going to have to help me with his name. Father sure. Ralph, is it? Pecoraro? Father Ralph Pecoraro. Pecoraro, okay. Um, when did you come in contact with him, and under what circumstance? He, he was a, an ecclesiastical judge. Um, he sat in the diocesan office uh, for the Catholic Church there in Rockville Center as a judge, ruling on various cases that came subject to church law for the Catholic Church. Mm-hmm. My first wife, that uh, had a, uh, she had applied for an annulment, um, meant that I had the opportunity to go in and be interviewed, if I wished, about that annulment process. And I didn't understand it uh, at the time, and so I went down and met with him. He called me and invited me in to do that. I really didn't think it was a necessary thing. I really didn't care whether she got an annulment or not. Um, I wasn't really sure that an annulment was proper, but end result is that's how I met him. Okay. What kind of man was he? Extraordinary. In what sense? He he read and spoke nine languages. Had an equivalent degree from a law degree from Oxford. Um, he met you on your terms. You didn't have to go to him. He was friendly and smart and. He took his time to explain things to me, why it was important that this annulment be granted and what the conditions the church considered it to be proper, properly so. But more than that, he um, I didn't realize at the time that there was something unusual about him in the sense that he's an ecclesiastical judge. I just figured that was his job. Mm -hmm. I realized the kind of degrees he had or the intellect involved in doing such a job or how you get to, to do that. So I guess you all may, became fast friends through, through good, this process. Good friends and talked on the phone uh, maybe once every ten days, seven days, sometimes two weeks, but it was always going to be he was going to come to dinner, meet Kathy and the kids, that kind of thing. All right, he ended up, anyway you became friends, and yes. he ended up Blessing this house, uh, right? Yeah, and I should tell you how that came about. I'd uh, like to know how it came about, yes. I, uh, one of my hobbies was building Harleys then, and a friend of mine, Jimmy Lascalzo in New York, had a Harley shop in East Northport, New York. And Jimmy, when I told him what house we were buying, the DeFeo house, right. he said, you've got to get the house blessed. And I said, what are you talking about? And he said, you've got to get a priest and get the house blessed. And I went home from that and asked, Kathy about that, and she said, oh, yeah, that's something you do 
if you're Catholic and you buy a new house, you do that. And, she, and she especially in this case. Huh? And we didn't know any priests. Yeah. <laughs> so Catholic was a non-practicing Catholic at the time. And so I called Father Ray and asked him if he would do it. And he said, yeah, sure, I'd be glad to. Little did I realize that wasn't the kind of thing that a... This was, a this was after you moved in, George? Or well, no, this is before we actually still. closed on the house. Ah, okay, so... It's one of those things you do supposedly when, as soon as you can when you buy it. All right, so... so it was coordinated that he would come in the day that we actually had the closing, that afternoon. Gotcha. So we were moving in when he showed up to do that. And uh, so, boom, 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 here he comes and begins, what, moving through the house to, to bless it? I don't know how that's done. Well, I hadn't, I hadn't actually even seen him arrive, and I hadn't seen him since I had seen him in his office that I recall now when I think back about it. It's the first time I'd seen him in months. I talked to him quite a bit, but always on the phone. So there he is going into the house, and I waved. I was in the back of the truck unloading the U-Haul, and a number of our friends, even one of Jimmy's brothers was there helping unload the you know, the stuff and moving it into the house. Sure. Moving day. We, um, we were a little bit behind because after we'd closed on the, the finances, in New York you do real estate a different way than you do out here. Uh, you go to a closing and they have their attorney and the bank has an attorney or a representative and you have your own attorney and they all sit there and they write everything up right then and there. Sure. And the title company has someone. It's a, it's a different process than it is anywhere else that I've seen. Well, uh, we had forgotten to get the key at the closing, so we had to go back and find the realtor and go back and get the key and so we could get, actually get in the house. Right. And there are all these people waiting around to help us move in. So he showed up, and we were quite behind time. You know, it's starting to get dark. It's November. And so I waved at him, and he went on in, found Kathy, and went about blessing the house. Which means what? You go to room, from room to room, that kind of thing? Yes, he went room to room, said prayers in each room, um, using holy water. And, and there are, I guess there's a house blessing that they do. It's, I'm not privy to the words. Uh, nor am I. Uh, but very interesting. Uh, all right, st stand by, George. We're already at the bottom of the first hour. It goes very quickly. Uh, George Lutz is my guest. He's the man, along with his family, who lived the real Amityville Horror. And uh, as the night progresses, we're going to get that story as it really occurred with the time necessary, which you have with the luxury of radio, to extract that kind of information. So that's what we're up to this night. George Lutz is here. I'm Art Bell, and this is Coast to Coast AM.
If I could read your mind, love, what a tale your thoughts could tell. Just like a paperback novel, the kind the drugstore sells. When you reach the part where the heartaches come, the hero would be me. The heroes often fail. Book again because the ending just too hard to take. To reach Art Bell in the Kingdom of Nye from west of the Rockies, dial 1 800 618 8255. East of the Rockies, 1 800 825 First time callers may reach Art at 1 775 727 1222 or use the wildcard line at 1 775 727 1295. To reach Art on the toll free International Line, call your AT&T operator and have them dial 800-893-0903. This is Coast to Coast AM with Art Bell on the Premier Radio Networks. Ghosts, or the presence of evil, seems most frequently to show up uh, at places where great evil has been done. Like the DeFeo murders, for example, six family members murdered, slaughtered. That's one. There are other occasions, but that's probably the most frequent with regard to hauntings, something evil around. No question about it. So the setup was there. In a moment, we'll get back to George Lutz, who lived the Amityville Horror. Now, once again, uh, from over the hill in Las Vegas, here is George Lutz. George, um, okay, uh, so... I guess we'll call him Father Ray. Yes. Blessed the house, went room to room, blessed the house, and then um, came back and told you what? He was a bit uncomfortable in the upstairs back bedroom. The uh, I wanted to pay him for coming. He wouldn't accept payment. Tried to give him a bottle of Canadian Club. He wouldn't take that. Uh-huh. Um, we invited him back for dinner. He stopped and just said, he asked us what we were going to use one bedroom floor, which was on the second floor in the back, and that was evidently uh, the bedroom where the two boys had been murdered. So he told you uh, not to use the second floor sewing room? I've got a little echo. Let me try to get rid of that. He told you not to use the second floor sewing room at all or or as a bedroom or what? Kathy explained she was going to use it as a sewing room, and that, he said, was fine. He just... There was something about the room that made him uncomfortable, and he and he, he managed to communicate that to us without any alarm or anything. I, do, I really don't know how to explain this other than he asked what we were going to use the room for. He said he felt a little bit uncomfortable there, and that's basically what he said. And so you didn't you didn't really probe uh, and and want to know the exact whys and wherefores of the warning. No, he wasn't uh, he wasn't forthcoming with it. He was um, it was like he wanted to leave, and uh huh. They, we weren't going to use it as a bedroom, so it wasn't an issue. All right. It was just—it was a strange thing for him to say, but it was like, okay, you have to leave, and that's all you're going to tell us. Obviously, you know, thanks for coming. Good night, and see you later. Really? Yeah. We all invited right. him back another time, you know, to come back for dinner, and he said he would, and that was it. All right. I, I've got somebody else here who had impressions of the house. Um, who's on the line? I'd like to bring on. Uh, Mary Pascarella was the lead psychic who investigated the house along with Ed and Lorraine Warren. I've interviewed them in March of 76. Mary is a professional psychic 
and Time Walker, who picked up on some truly terrifying things when she visited uh, your home. She said the case had a profound effect on her. It was the first time she had ever encountered something she could only describe as pure evil. Pure evil. Art, I don't know that she's ever been interviewed about this. Well, she is going to be now. Uh, Mary, welcome to the program. Well, good evening, Lee, and how are you? Hi, Mary. Hey, honey. How are you? Where are you, Mary? I'm in Pennsylvania. In Pennsylvania. Yeah. Um, you, so you've never been uh, interviewed in this fashion before about w what happened? No. We, we had we had a strange arrangement with that. I'm I'm very private about things that I do, and it was just something that I wasn't comfortable doing. You are private because I'm pretty familiar in this field, uh, Mary, and I'm not familiar with you. Uh, so you obviously are very private. Anyway, you went into the house at the behest of Ed and uh, Lorraine Warren. I've interviewed them. And, uh, and, and what happened? Can you, in your own words, what happened? Um, we went in at a time when the North Carolina team was out there from Duke. And uh, I had not met Lee. Um, when I go anyplace, I'm, I always say, don't tell me anything about the house. And Ed called me one night and said, I have a case I'd like you to investigate, and what is your impression? And I said, I see a white house with a fan window, and he said, okay, don't say anything else. Right. And yet we'll get in the car and go. And when we arrived there, it was uh, there was a team there, and we could not go in, and they went up and got pizza, and I stayed in the car. And uh, then I walked out to the back of the house because uh, I like to get feelings of things. Yes. And um, when I got into the back... I had heard water, and so I saw a pool. And I thought, well, that's it. There's the pool. There's the water, and discharged that. But while I was in back there, I usually say some. I'm Catholic, and I usually say some prayers before I go into a house. So it was my quiet time, and I looked up into the window in the back of the house, and I saw the face of a of a young girl looking back out. A young girl. Right, and I had never, I knew nothing of the DeFeos. Um, I hadn't met Lee. Uh, I mean, I'm sorry, George. Um, Either one works, Mary. <laughs> well, you're Lee to me. <laughs> so uh, I had not met the family. Uh, but because children were involved, and I'm, I'm a proverbial mother, um, I was only interested in doing the house because there were children involved in the house. Of course. Um, so I looked up and I saw the face in the window. It later became, uh, it was the sewing room, I, have, um, I believe, that was the upstairs window looking out. That would be the one Father Ray talked about. Right. And at that time, I, we hadn't been in the house. Um, when you enter this house, it's, uh, it's very deceptive. When I first went into the house, I said to Ed, these people are really weird. We're not even going to think about this. This house is beautiful, and the house was beautiful. Uh, uh, the Lutzes had uh, decorated the house, so you walked in, and it was a beautiful home. And it gave you no feeling, no sensation of anything other than a house. Um, that comes much later. All right, but, uh, but at some point. Um, when I went upstairs to, um, the first thing that we did when we went in is there's a dining room to the right-hand side, and um, that had a table that had dishes and things. Later we cleared some of that. 
um, when you go, there's a stairwell as you enter, and then when you go down, there's another stairwell that goes down to a, um, a basement area. When you get into the basement area, there's a little laundry room off to your uh, right-hand side okay. of the stairs. And then there, I looked to the left, and there was this um, large game room. And the game room had a pool table and uh, family things sure. where a family would enjoy themselves. Sure. In front of you, there was a little door, and it was into a small, like, a cold cellar, you know, the old houses that had, uh, uh, like, a little root cellar. Oh, yes. Yeah. So you open the door and you go into a root cellar. Um, I never could really go into that room because it had an odor to it. Um, Now, you have to understand that um, I was under the impression that the house had nothing there. But I investigate the house to see, because I walk time, to see what possibly could have affected it to cause people to be affected by the house. And um, so we got to the laundry room, had some some clothes that were on the floor. So I'm Mrs. Queen by nature, and I picked up the clothes and threw them in and washed them, figuring maybe if there was an odor there, it might be the, the uh, clothing themselves. So... Um, because it was definitely like a a dirty sock smell or something that had soiled. A foul odor. Yeah, yeah, yeah like, like a um, just a, an odor. And um, I'm one of these people that is very fussy and very clean. And if there's a smell, I'll either find the source. And as a psychic, if you say a, a refrigerator's in the air, I better be able to put my hand under it, or otherwise I'm not going to believe that there's a refrigerator in the air. You know, you have to use logic. Um, well, I know that sock smell. My mom told me my, my socks could march the way to the, the washer by themselves. <laughs> when, when I was about 13 or 14, it was awful. Well, I'll tell you, they, the lessons were in, impeccably clean, and the house was absolutely gorgeous. I mean, what they lost, I'll never be able to replace that was for sure afterwards when you sit down. And the reality is is that there has to be something that drove them away because it, it, there, there was more truth in that house as you got to know it. Well, I, I, you know, I know the finances of all this, and the people who say this is some kind of farce or hoax are full of it because the money thing doesn't add up in any way you look at it, either before, during, or after. None of it makes any sense unless. I oh, mean, no, because... That house had to have his possessions alone when you walked in and knew you were walking. I thought they were very affluent because they had collections of coins and uh, things. You know, he was a collector, obviously. But that's that's a moot point right now. So. What, what is important, though, and what I want to get from you is what you sensed finally in that house. Okay. Um, when you go up the stairs, from the first stair to the seventh, there, there's about there's a cotton batting feeling, a feeling of wrapping, and it's as though the something terrible had happened on that stairwell, uh-huh. and that was the first sense of something not quite right. Um, going up the stairs to the sewing room, I walked in and I've been blessed with with an imagination or a mind that can see time, and there was a young woman in there. 
um, I'd say 15 or 16, with long brown hair and parted in the middle. And if you remember those little moo-moo dresses oh, they had, yes, the paisley things, yes. and she was crying. And one of our jobs, as uh, one of my jobs is, if you see something that's misplaced, you try to place it back. So I started to say some prayers and said, go to the white light, because I knew that then I thought that was what the haunting was. Um, and so I said, go to the white light. And at that point in time, it was as though the house did not want that soul released. And you started to feel pressures and uh -huh. anger. Uh -huh. And then when you walk out to the hallway, I felt that I had given her the white light and she had gone. Um, in my mind. But there was evil, real evil in that house? Mary. Absolutely. Absolutely. After the investigation, there was a, I could never go to the third floor. Uh, when you walk down the hall on the right-hand side, there's a stairwell. Well, I'm not allowed sometimes to do things because I'm one of these people that still be believing at Bambi and and huh. the Tooth Fairy and things like that. And so I'm I'm... I'm not good with evil or bad things. Um, I don't think many of us have confronted uh, pure evil uh, directly. Father Malachi Martin spoke of it many times, and I, I still, um, I, I, even the concept of, of evil uh, as an entity, as a as pure thing, is um, it will stand there on the back of my neck straight up, and I, 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 I have a sense, but that's all. I've never confronted it directly, nor do I wish to. Well, neither had I, and um, um, I had a group of friends. I worked for the Diocesan Bridgeport at that time, and I had a school, and um, I had four priest friends, and whenever I went anywhere, they always gave me holy water and borrowed one of their Bibles and a cross and brought it with me just as a kind of a protection for myself. Because you never know. If you don't, people don't understand that if there's good, there's evil. Yeah, I understand that. You just don't touch it as frequently. And because we're locked in a clock time, uh, we don't walk the perimeters. Yes. The one thing that I did know about that house was it was not the original house. Um, I used to be an artist. And I can, in my mind, blueprints will form. And I can, I kind of sense when something's real or not real. And the thing that I knew immediately without having met Lee was that this was a man that was protecting his children yes. and his home. It had nothing. I don't even think he believed in in us as psychic investors, investigators. I mean, not truly. I think his main concern was the amount of money that he invested in the home. Of course. And his children. Yeah, that's the real world. But but bottom line, Mary, uh, in your investigation, there was no question in your mind you had encountered in that house pure evil. Pure evil. America. We had a set. We had a Channel Five that was doing a séance, and I was to be the least psychic in that. Um, uh, we had gotten um, to the point where I, the house had began to affect me. Um, and I had gotten up on the stairs, and I called down to Ed, and I said, Ed, I'm as sick as a dog. Well, I had this little room upstairs 
I believe it was Missy's bedroom. Yes. And um, that was my haven. I could go there and feel perfectly safe, perfectly safe. So I said to Ed, I'm going to lay down in the bed for a little while because I'm, it was either that I hadn't slept or whatever. And so I began to say my prayers, and I was saying the Our Father. And as I was saying the Our Father, I looked out of the door, and there was a young man that was with me taping. And I looked out of the door, and as I was saying the Our Father, um, there was a group of figures standing outside of the door saying the Our Father backward. I thought, oh, excuse me, but that, that, that doesn't sit well with me. I'm also a stubborn person that says, don't threaten me because I'll stand up and my fists go up. And is there any took, question, Mary, is there any question in your mind that DeFeo uh, souls were trapped in that home? Um, I didn't know about the DeFeos at the time, but I, I did I understand. know. Yeah, I did know that uh, in one of the bedrooms, I I sensed a young man who was crying as though he had done something really bad. So I knew two things about this house. I knew one that someone was forced into a position to commit something really horrible there. Didn't know what it was, but did know that it happened, um, that there was a force or an energy in that house that was subject to taking hold of somebody. And I will say this now, and I'll say it till the day I die, that since we don't know what time is, and time in time is only a fraction of a second, that the energy in that house remains. It may take a hundred years of our time, but it will implode again. And that house is purely evil. I took the holy water and threw it outside to the figures. I took the cross and I raised the cross and I said, I said a prayer and I said, God is with me. And I threw it and I, did you ever throw water on a fire? And you get this kind of a little hissing sound. Yes. Well, that's what the sound was. And the kid that was with me, I thought he was going to faint. But, again, that's the house. The house is deceptive. It will take an innocent person, and I believe Kathy was such a sweet and innocent child, a girl, a young woman, and it affected the house. It affected curious children, uh, and Lee was the strength in that house, so the house could never really affect him, only make him angry and want to find out what was the matter. You're very well aware the investigators, uh, the investigators, Mary, um, uh, caught a photograph when there was no child in the home, an eerie photograph that'll stand the hair on the back of your neck straight up up at the top of that stairwell, caught a photograph of a child when there was no photograph in, of any, or no child in there to be photographed. They got a photograph of what appears to be a ghost child. I've got that on the website right now, www.rpl.com. Is there any question in your mind that photograph is one of the Lutz, or excuse me, not the Lutz, the DeFeo, no, the DeFeo, God forbid. Yeah, God forbid, right. The DeFeo children? I believe that since I was not allowed up on the third floor to the to where the children were, the boys, I believe, were, uh, that it was probably one of those. And do I believe they were trapped? Yes, I do. I think that the girl escaped into 
what may have been another room of haven and that what Father felt was the presence without being able to be aware that there was a presence there. You know, us Catholics are trained in a very different way. And Mary, you believe that house is going to, as you put it, implode again? Absolutely. You You get somebody that's very susceptible. Mary, we're out of the thing you walk, time, and I've got to go, but I want to thank you for calling in, and, and, and thank you so much. Okay, and I'm totally, I'm on and listening. All right, Mary. Mary uh, Pascarella, George Lutz is my guest. She walks time. Uh, that was some stroll she took in that house. I'm Art Bell. From west of the Rockies at 1-800-618-8255. East of the Rockies, 1-800-825-5033. First-time callers may reach Art at 1-775-727-1222. And the wild card line is open at 1-775-727-1295. To reach Art on the toll-free international line, call your AT&T operator and have them dial 800-893-0903. This is Coast to Coast AM with Art Bell from the Kingdom of Nye. Indeed so. Uh, my guest is George Lutz, who lived with his family, the Amityville Horror. Incidentally, I'd like to thank Dan Perrins for uh, uh, helping to make all of this possible and assisting with uh, some of the material from the History Channel's documentaries, which he did on the Amityville Horror. In a moment, we'll get right back to George Lutz. George, welcome back to the program. Hi, Art. Um, you uh, have uh, described what happened in that house at Amityville, George, as, um, oh, I don't know, I guess a kind of a three-ring circus. Now, many, many in my audience have either read the book or seen the movie, and the movie, of course, dramatized the heck out of what happened, I suppose. That's, I, a, nice, that's a really nice way to put that. Is it? It's, it was very Hollywood. Very Hollywood. All right, but what's the real story, George? What, what really did happen there? It didn't happen all at once. Uh, I, when I think back on it now, I think my perceptions of it are uh, different than they were then. It seemed 
at times then that it just was like a rolling snowball that got bigger and bigger and bigger? Well, nobody, no family pays that kind of money for a house, lays their life on the line, especially a place they love, and then flees a house, George. It doesn't happen without some really serious stuff going on, movie or no movie. Uh, nobody does that. Nobody flees a house without uh, a significant reason. What really happened? When we, when we left the house, Art, I should tell you that we wanted to get the house fixed. We really did not want to just leave or leave our stuff or give up on living there. Of course not. And so when the opportunity came to put together the, the psychics that went in and investigate the house, the idea was that they would fix it. Yeah, but there was, uh, there, there, there was obviously a lot wrong to fix, and that's what I want to know about. I mean, what the hell happened in that house uh, to even bring the psychics on? Uh, what, what made what, us leave, in other words? Well, uh, or even to the point where the psychics came in. I mean, what began to happen in that house, George? By the, by the last week we were there, it was nightly occurrences of noises, the Things like odors coming and going or Kathy being touched from behind by some unseen person uh, or Missy talking to herself and, and asking questions like Jody telling us about her imaginary friend that wasn't so imaginary, it turns out. Yeah, she claimed to have an imaginary friend, right? Yes, and she would come and ask Kathy questions like, do angels talk? And Really? Jody is the name of the angel, and she, Jody, is telling Missy that they're, we're going to live there forever. Forever. Um, strange things. It, it's kind of off-putting. The, the, our dog Harry um, would not go in that room that Mary was talking about earlier. The the last night we were in the house was the was the re was the reason not to stay there anymore. Well, and when we called Father Ray the next day, he asked what we were still doing there. He was surprised that we were still even in the house, and it hadn't even occurred to us to, even at that point, to, to just up and abandon everything and, and get in the van and leave. The That night, Kathy had levitated and moved away across, away from me on the bed. No, 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 wait a minute. Slow up right there. Sure. Kathy levitated. Yes. Now, you were both in bed? Yes. And you were both awake or both uh, asleep or at the time or what? Kathy was asleep. She was asleep. And she lifted up off the bed and went towards the wall away from me. Huh. Uh, this, is, this is after she had turned into an, an old crone, a, a really ugly old woman that literally took hours and hours for it to go away. In front of your face? Yes, and then later she did that again at her mom's house after we moved out of the house and moved in with her mom. Oh, my God. You're sitting there watching your wife, and she turns, and uh, like the picture of Dorian Gray, she, she, she almost instantly becomes an old woman? Yes. And then that, that effect remains for hours? Remains, yeah, one time it was longer than just a few hours. What happened, Art, was that these things... In and in by themselves, for example, I, 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 everyone in that all my kids and Kathy slept on their stomachs in that house. After we moved out, we found out that the, the DeFeo murders, all of the whole family had slept on their stomachs. They were all murdered in their sleep. None of them got up. 
none of them got out of bed or were awakened, evidently, by the, the sounds of the rifle going off, killing all six of them. There were no drugs found in, in their bodies in the autopsy, and they were all sleeping face down. I was the only one that could not sleep face down in that house. I never slept down, face down before that, and I certainly couldn't do it there. Through all of this, uh, George, did you ever question your own sanity? I mean, we don't often look at our wives and see them become a 90-year-old woman instantly and then have that remain for hours. I mean, we, we just don't. Uh, did you question your own sanity? Sure. Many, many times in many different ways. What about, what about the effect on Kathy? Um, uh, Kathy... Was she questioning your sanity or her own, or, or were you beginning to understand it was the house? Kathy was damaged in a different... Each of us were affected in a different way, and I think Kathy was damaged in a different way than, than I was, and I think that it, for her, in, in so many ways, it was much harder for her to recover over the years and, and, and be able to put it in a place, so to speak, you know, get, give it some distance even after moving to California and then later on to Arizona, uh, there were times when she was much more sensitive than I was. Do you think she's? Do you think she's all right with it now? Has she come to terms now with it, or is it still a bad word haunting her? When we did we did a uh, this special for the uh, History Channel two years ago, and. That interview was some eight hours, and she was hooked up to oxygen. She has a, um, a disorder, known a breathing disorder called valley fever that has, is quite serious, quite debilitating, and right now she's still in uh, a form of a hospital that deals with respiratory diseases. Yeah, I saw the uh, oxygen tubes. Yes. Well, she's had a, a relapse since then. Um, that was a very hard day for her. It was, it was, the interview was, I think, something like eight and a half hours, and... Then afterwards, we went out to dinner, um, so it was a long day for her. And there are times when, you know, certain questions will come up and be worded in a certain way that are really, you can see the effect on her, sure. But um, that happens to me as well. Uh, it's not, this is not a, a comfortable subject. It's not something, you know, that that has a lot of humor in it. Yeah. And humor is the one thing that, that does make it um, less strong, less... Uh, Less affecting of you. I, I yes, I understand that. I use it myself. Um, it, it is a wonderful tool to deal with this kind of thing. Um, the movie, of course, dramatized the ooze out of the walls and uh, uh, the flies and all, all the rest of that. Well, uh, the flies were real. The flies were. Tell me about that. The flies were. This is the winter time, and the, the back bedroom, that one sewing room, had flies from the day we moved in and they became more and more and more and they were there when the investigators went in now just on the back window and they that's the same window that Mary saw the I guess you'd call it an apparition or a person from the, looking up at it um, flies were always there they were always didn't go away huh. you'd, you'd kill them and they'd still come back really so that that part was real, not the oozing out of the walls. Not the oozing out but of the walls. That, that was it, it's one of those things that, in fact, is, is sometimes in my mind at least stranger than than fiction. What really happened that I think they tried to draw that from. What really happened in the house was that there were keyholes, old old style doors. This is 
house was built in the 30s, and it had old-style keyholes. I remember them, yes. They had, we had drips that got longer and longer. They were black. They were almost like an epoxy. And the longer we were in the house, the longer the drips came out of certain keyholes in the oh. second and third floor. Oh, so there was some basis in truth. Yes, but not the oozing out of the walls. Not the oozing, but, right. but something. And then there was, there were, we would wake up in the morning and we would find this gelatin-like substance going from room to room. And you would think, well, the kids got into jello or, or you know, somebody did something. Uh-huh. But there was no jello in the house at the time and the, the kids didn't do that. Um, and it was sticky, and it it was there. I mean, it was there for the. So, the what theater. did you do with this stuff? Just try and clean it up, or well, what? it was like spots. It wasn't like a, a you know a big mess of some kind. It just it trapped from room to room. Uh huh. Huh. And Kathy would wipe it up and just move on. So um, that that was occurring every day. No, that would. I mean, it would. You couldn't depend on anything. The the one thing, thank God, is the lights didn't go out. <laughs> At no time did they, you know, they would flicker, but they did not go out. They would flicker, though? Yeah. Um, so I, I guess I see what you mean by a three-ring circus. Um, all of this kind of thing was going on. Well, that, I'm sorry, I, I, I strayed from where I was going before. One of the things was that I would be laying there in bed on my back, and everyone else would be asleep, the house would be quiet, and I'd be getting ready to go to sleep, and I would hear... Or I would be already asleep, and I would wake up to a, a sound of, of musicians, like, tuning up downstairs. Really? And I would think that a clock radio went off, and it was off its, uh, off the station or something like that. And there is no clock radio down there, but that's the first thing that comes to your mind. You wouldn't know what else it could be. Go down there, and there'd be no noise, and the dog would be asleep uh, right by the front door. Harry was a big black Malamute. He wasn't, you know... He wasn't a shirking little princess. He was a he was a really cool dog, and he was right. he was in love with those kids. He he was gotten as a tiny puppy. Um, this I don't know whether you've ever been asked this, uh, George, but it's a logical question in view of the uh, DeFeo slaughter. Uh, was there ever a time when you found your mind drifting to an awful place where you were perhaps? being urged to or considered doing evil yourself, George? It's not a question I've ever answered in public. Really? Yeah. It's, um... Uh, uh, I don't know that I'll answer you this straight out, okay, but what I will tell you is this. The, the tool we mentioned of humor... Yes. I told Father Ray many of the things that went on for us and he was the one that told me about humor that evil can't stand it it can't be in the presence of it it has no understanding of humor it can't relate to it and it drives it away and i had to learn the 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 mental ability if you will to to be able to think of something humorous when I would get a thought that I didn't like. So you did answer it. You did get them. And that's how you responded. Um, that's the only thing that's ever worked other than the rosary. A kind of a defense. Uh, humor is a defense. There's no question about it. I mean, you're right about that. It is. And so you were strong enough to muster that up as a defense. Well, it, was a very, it became an exercise, but it took years to, to get 
for it to be just an exercise and not something that was a real struggle. I understand that you actually uh, began to have uh, some feelings of of sorrow or a caring about DeFeo, who's uh, you know going to be in jail for six life sentences. And I, the only reason that I could understand that you would begin to get those feelings is because you would understand uh, perhaps a little bit of what he went through, and that's why I asked you the question, George. There's no doubt in our minds, ever, never has been any doubt after living there, that a sane person doesn't do this to his family. And, and someone with any kind of right thinking or ability to reason, that reason has been taken away or has been obfuscated in such a way, occluded or clouded or or they've been separated from their reasoning powers in a way that most of us hopefully will never understand. And there's no doubt in our mind that he was influenced by that house and that he was controlled at least for a point. He provided a service to that, if you will, that um, mm -hmm. was so horrible that he couldn't live with it or realize it himself and without extreme long-term psychiatric care is no help of, of redemption of any kind in this life. Do you think uh, that um, his case should be reviewed for the reasons you're talking about right now? I don't know that they, what I think, I don't know if that matters. Um, it probably doesn't, but I, it's an important question. Do you had his appeals, they've, they've failed. I, I don't, I think that a disservice was done to him terribly years ago that he that it that it wasn't a, a full-blown insanity plea that it wasn't appealed on that basis that it that it wasn't an absolute that he needed psychiatric care and still does i think it's inhumane to think that okay they got the guy he did it yes physically he did the murders but um spiritually emotionally no i, I don't believe that he's in a pure sense, responsible for that as a human being. I think that he needs help, and I don't think that anyone cares enough to to try to get it for him anymore. We did what we could, and we tried a number of different ways, and his attorney, William Weber, was um, wanted to do a book and make money off him and signed Ronald DeFeo up for a 5% cut of whatever book that, that his lawyer did, you know, put together. So it became obvious that these people were not going to try to help him. Um, the uh, the final night that you spent in that house, you've never talked about. You've always refused to talk about the last night in the house. Why? What happens, Art, is when you do that, the the worst of it comes back. It doesn't. It, it's not like it disappeared. It's not like I can detach myself and from it and just talk about it like what I did yesterday. Um, you feel it. Not all of it, thank God, but it comes back and it's not a pleasant experience. I was laying there in that in in bed. Kathy levitated, and I had to grab her to keep her from going off the bed. There, there is no question in your mind, George. You weren't dreaming this. You weren't asleep. You're, <laughs> you're, you're, yeah, I mean, it's, it's an I obvious question. question. Yes. Yeah. No, there's no question. We were. So very pleased three years later to have Chris Gugas come along and give us a polygraph test, each of us, in his office with Michael Rice. I was not aware that had been done. Yes. And one of the questions, well, it's a long process. It's not like you walk in, strap on the machine, and go. Oh, yeah. You have to agree to the questions. Um, 
they have to run a baseline. They do a physiological workup to, to to get within that baseline so that they can get the real responses. Yes. Chris Gugas had taught the use of the polygraph. He was considered number two and number three man in the world at the time. He had taught the use of the polygraph throughout the world for the armed forces, for the, for the Army, um, for their intelligence people. He had uh, been instructed personally by the head guy at the, at the FBI. So that was one of the questions he asked? One of the questions was, did you levitate? Um, one of the questions was, did Kathy turn into an old woman? And you, you answered them all and uh, went sailing past the polygraph? Absolutely. Uh, later, those, those findings were published in the uh, National Star, of all things. It was it was one of those things where the movie company was getting ready to release the movie, and they wanted to do uh-huh. this, and these are expensive tests. Oh, I'm well aware. They were willing to pay for it, and we said, get us the best there is, and we'll do it. Otherwise, we're not interested in doing it with someone that just got out of school. All right. You get five questions. They have to be yes or no. And that, you know, you get one shot at doing this thing right. It's not like you have... Well, George, you know, you know um, people who are lying usually don't agree to a polygraph. That's that's for damn sure. George, hold on. We're at the bottom of the hour. George Lutz, who with his family lived the Amityville Horror, is my guest. And tonight you're hearing uh, the real story of what happened in that home. From the high desert, I'm Art Bell. From west of the Rockies, dial 1-800-618-8255. East of the Rockies, 1-800-825-5033. First-time callers may reach Art at 1-775-727-1222. Or use the wildcard line at 1-775-727-1295. To reach Art on the toll-free international line, call your AT&T operator and have them dial 800-893-0903. This is Coast to Coast AM with Art Bell on the Premier Radio Network. Tonight you're hearing what really happened at Amityville. My guest is George Lutz. 
Can you imagine? I'm going to ask you in a moment. I want to go back to it. Can you imagine looking at your wife and seeing her instantly becoming an old woman, a very old woman, a 90-year-old or better woman? Once again, here's George Lutz. George, when you when you saw Kathy become a 90-year-old woman, or better, suddenly, um, I, I can't even imagine uh, went through what, what would have gone through your mind. I mean, it would have been like, out of this house, now, gone. I'm out of here, running out of here, actually. But but to see that happen to your wife, apparently more than once? Yes. Yeah, more than once. Um I, I mean, what went through your mind? Uh, aside from questioning your own sanity, once you realized this really was going on, what did you think was happening? Well, what occurs to me to answer you right now is that I'm thinking, how do we fix this? What caused this? But not putting it together with the house as such. Did you think you were seeing your wife as an old woman, or did you think you were seeing uh, something else? I had watched the transformation, so I knew it was her. I, did, I wasn't going all of those, all kinds of other places. I don't think in my mind. Um, so. I don't. I, it's so long ago now, Art, for me to try to yes. to tell you exactly what I was thinking. Then I, I couldn't do it. It wouldn't be right. It w I'd be making something up. up that wouldn't. Yeah, don't wouldn't do that. What, what went through my mind then? I know the main thing was let's. How do we fix this? What caused this? Uh, that's the obvious stuff. All right. Well, you obviously, aside... It's a revulsion that, that I remember feeling also. I mean, this is this is not a pleasant thing. Yeah, of course not. Uh, and, and seeing somebody levitate in the air. <laughs> but I don't know that you you put it to the house. You, you were, well, I, I can understand. I mean, you love that house. You were trying, I'm sure, in your own mind, to think of anything else other than the house. Absolutely. When the odors occurred in the in the basement, you go looking for broken pipes or leaks. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, when you have noises, you go trying to look for the cause of them. We'd be sitting in the, the uh, kitchen at night, and the kids would be asleep, and you'd hear someone upstairs walking around. So you'd go up, and you'd find all the kids asleep in the bed. So you'd come back down, and, and a couple nights later, you'd have some people over, and they would hear the same thing. Then you would know you weren't crazy, and then you would know that something's going on that you don't really understand. But that doesn't mean you just get up and leave your house. Aside from having a priest in, you did, uh, you and Kathy tried to bless the house on your own, right? Yes, we did, twice. What happened? The... <laughs> we were, we basically, we were told it didn't work. We heard this chorus of voices, as it's been described, uh, asking us to stop blessing the house. We went around and opened a window in each room. Mm -hmm. uh, a friend of ours, and when I, when I said earlier that you have people over and you, they hear the same thing, well, in the process of that, a fellow by the name of Bill Newcomb had come over and, excuse me for just a moment, I have to cough. I, I understand. I've been doing it nonstop here for days. What a cold. Yeah, yeah. Um, and we, he had had a similar problem in his house when he was in a house that evidently was haunted and he said you go around you bless you do the house blessing yourself you go around you open a window in each room you say the Lord's Prayer you tell whatever is there to leave and then you close the window well that seemed like a reasonable solution especially since here was someone that I had worked for and he had heard the footsteps and he knew the kids were asleep so we went we did that uh, 
my son Danny's hands were caught in the window in the sewing room, and they were flattened. His hands were were down, oh my God. and the window had flattened the hands. And immediate reaction is we got to go to the hospital, and we start to go get ready to go. And, and, and what happened? This uh, this window of its uh, parent own accord came slamming down on his hands. Yes, and it just didn't just slam down. Was was mushed in such a way that his hands were actually deformed. They were flat. Oh. So you get ready to go to the hospital, and then um, and he's screaming. Yeah, and everybody's running around getting their coats and getting him downstairs and trying to calm him down, which is pretty much impossible. And you go to leave and look at his hands, and he's fine. What? Um... It didn't occur to us until much later that the house never really wanted us to leave. We would always invite people over. We would have, you know, but we wouldn't. We would go out of our, out of our way not to leave, not to go out someplace. While we were there, we had enrolled in a, a reupholstery course at the local high school. It's what these colds do you, folks. I'm sorry. That's all right. Um, and we never went to any of the classes. I mean, Kathy went out and bought the, uh, the material to recover the dining room set that we had bought from the DeFeo estate. Um, but we never yeah, I, yeah, that's we right. just don't go out. You know? yeah, I, I, yeah, that's a curious thing. Um, you did buy a number of things from the DeFeo estate for the, from the house, right? Yes. Uh, why did you do that? Just because it was a really good buy, or I mean, what was the reasoning? Well, uh, let's start with we had two houses. Not not both of us liked each other's furniture. We had garage sales at Kathy's house. We had garage sales at my house. All right. Uh, and now we're moving into a four thousand square foot house, and we've got to fill it up if we can with some stuff. Uh, they made us a deal we kind of couldn't sort of refuse. Yep, gotcha. And they had nice stuff. It wasn't like this was blood spattered or anything. It was, you know. Good stuff, yeah. 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 The dining room set was extraordinary. Uh, the kitchen set was lovely. The Some of the dressers that were up in Missy's room were fine. There was no reason not to, to buy all of that. It was there. Yeah, and really, if you're buying the house and you're walking into that, and you know what happened. Then, uh, then what's the difference between that and the furniture or the whatever? Well, they weren't the mattresses weren't there, nothing like that. I mean, we had our own beds. The the it was one of those things that was decided at the closing. What happened at the closing was that they had uh, the people that ran the estate had filled up the oil tank, which was almost another two thousand dollars and cash that was needed right then and there, too. So the mm -hmm. actual cash out of pocket at the closing, including the furniture and everything, was about 24000 something like that. Mm -hmm. On the last night that we were in there, the I wasn't able to get up out of bed. There was a storm going on, as far as we were concerned, as a family in the house while we were awake. A storm in the house? No, out, out, there was a, while we were in the house, there was a storm going on right around outside. Okay. Big storm. Uh, later it, was, it has been said that there was no storm there. Well, we know what we experienced. As far as we're concerned, there was an incredible storm that night. The, uh, the boys' beds were being lifted up and slammed down overhead of me, but I could not get up out of bed to go up and, and deal with that or stop it or see what was going on. What about Kathy? That's when Kathy was levitating and moving away from me and turning oh, into an old God. woman. Kathy was... Mostly asleep that night. Well, I had brought Harry, our dog, up to and tied him to the uh, master bedroom doorknob 
for him to stay there at the right there, and mm-hmm. he kept getting up, um, walking in circles, throwing up, and then going back to sleep again. When you when when you say you you couldn't get up, you 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 say you didn't sleep on your stomach, right? You, right. I could not get up out of bed. You literally couldn't move. No, I could not move. And this went on all night long. This went on for most of the night. I was the bed was soaking wet, and it was from sweat. <laughs> Prior to this night, had you been talking to Kathy um, at all privately? I, I would assume you would have conversations with Kathy about what was going on aside from the children. Yes, and talking, and she would tell me what Missy would say to her, and the boys were treating each other differently than they had before we moved in. There, everyone kind of went to their own spaces at times. Um, for each of us, we learned later it was a different experience at times in the house. It wasn't like we all experienced everything in unison or saw the same things or heard the same thing. Well, that's the next question I was going to ask. Do you have any knowledge, George? I asked you about your own um, state of mind and whether you were perhaps being pushed to do something awful or felt moments of that. I wonder if since you found out that anybody else in the family was being pushed in one way or the other. You'll need to ask me that again a different way if you would. Sorry, I don't Um, want to answer this in a way that I am assuming what you're asking me. Yeah. Um, Are you now aware that anybody else in your family was being affected uh, in a in a particularly negative way, perhaps to the degree that they uh, they might have done something awful. And if you don't want to answer no, that, no, I, I'm not aware of that. I'm, I no, that's not. The, the boys were little. Um, Unfortunately, in America, we live uh, in a time where little boys have done some pretty awful things. And so I, you know, if there really was, if there was evil in that home, George, um, its effect could have been different on each and every one of you. It was different on each of us, Art, but it wasn't, I, I don't think of it in, in those terms. I haven't never considered that that was a, a strong possibility. One of the things we did, though, going back to your previous question, though, to, and this will probably help with this, is we, t- we tried to talk to Father Ray a number of times. We got phone static, got hung up on, unable to call him from the house. I would go to my office and I'd be able to talk to him and tell him what was going on. Uh, we asked him to come back to the house mm-hmm. to bless it. it. You know, the blessing hadn't worked. Mm-hmm. Um, the, that when we got through to him the next morning, after our last night there, and he asked us why we were still there, that's, that's when it was like slammed home, we got to leave. He's not coming here. He's not going to do anything, and we're not going through any more of this. Well, did he ever break down and actually tell you what he really thought about that house? Obviously, if he said well, you're still there like that, yes, he did. And then but it was after we moved out. Yeah, and what did he say? His words were almost parallel to Father Malachi's in in some ways. He said they knew about the house, meaning the archdiocese, the Catholic Church. Oh that they knew that, the, that there had been things that had gone on when the DeFeos were there. The DeFeos had had masses said there, which may have very well triggered what went on for them, just like having the house blessed did for us. When I heard, and I never heard the words myself on your show that Father Malachi said, but when I heard that 
he said the church knew about this. Yes. That was not a surprise to me. It was a surprise that he said it on the air live because the church has denied and denied and denied the existence of evil in the house at that time. Well, George, uh, Father Martin um, admitted and said a lot of things that the church uh, as an organization would not be willing to. Uh, Father Martin was close to a couple of popes. He was way up in the Catholic Church at one point. Uh, uh, Father Martin uh, said some things about the church and the Vatican itself that I'm sure the Vatican would pre have preferred he not say. Um, but that he... was, I, I considered that truly a heroic act oh, indeed. when I heard that, because it, the church has gone to great lengths in different interviews and at different times to deny that there was any, you know that there was any validity to this case and for him to say that and know it and i've heard this from other priests in, privately over the years but the church has never you know said look we know there's a problem with the defaos in that house and we, we believe that there's something really wrong there you know it's a strange thing george when you think about it a little bit my wife is a non-practicing catholic um i'm not a catholic and i'm 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 i think i'm you know, I'm not very strictly in a church religious way. That's not me. I, I'm, I, I think that I, I certainly believe in a creator and so forth and so on. But it, I think it's strange, George, that the church itself, which preaches that there is a God and there is a heaven and there is all the rest of it, uh, seems, in uh, particularly in modern times, to be in denial about the opposite, about evil, which so obviously to even a halfway rationally thinking person ought to be if you've got good i mean there seems to be an opposite to everything then you there's also evil in the world and the church seems to be in official denial about evil you agree with that i think of it in a different way i'm not going to say say that i disagree with you i understand why you say what you do i and i have no idea really why I'm more tolerant, maybe, than than being so quick to condemn the Catholic Church like so many people are right now. I don't know if this they is a really. I don't know if it's condemnation. I understand, uh, but it, I, I, I look. I'm I'm a divorced Catholic. I can't partake of the sacraments. I became a Catholic after this voluntarily. At one point, I was a Eucharistic minister in in San Diego at the Mission San Diego de Alcala which is the Basilica in San Diego. Nothing pleased me more than to be a part of the church. But when I got divorced from Kathy, that was mm -hmm. my ability to, to partake of the sacraments was gone. And that hurt, and it still does. I went to Mass for the first time on Christmas Eve, first time in something like 13, 12 or 13 years wow. this last week. And... It wasn't the same as going to a Mass that Father Ray said. When you went to Mass for Father, with Father Ray, it was a joyous celebration. And this was a serious Christmas Eve Mass, and there was nothing wrong with it. It just, it was like the heart had gone out of some of it. And I miss that. And I will always support the Church, the Catholic Church. And, and if they have, for their reasons, done and said things that they believe are right and, and they can believe in their heart is true, okay. But we have pictures of apparently what is a, re a very good likeness of 
of Padre Pio, who is now St. Pio, in the house, appearing to, um, there on the side of a moose head that was my grandfather's. And at the time that that picture was taken, Lorraine Warren, is, is one of the psychics who was in the house, who's been on your show, um, was saying a prayer to Padre Pio, asking him to come and be with her in spirit there at the house. This is during the investigation. And so, I don't, you know, the picture is more important to me than what the church says, what some uh, priest says that wasn't there. Yes. Okay? The picture means more to me. And I hold Padre Pio very dear in my heart, um, and always will. George, the last night, the last night in the house, they, they, what, did you, uh, do you remember the time, the actual time of day you left? Was it morning? Was it nighttime? I, Somewhere around four in the afternoon. Four in the oh, in the afternoon, really. So you had uh, that horrible night where you couldn't get out of bed, and then you had all day long until four in the afternoon before you left that house. What yes. was what was that day like? Well, it's it's <laughs> that's that idea that the house doesn't want you to leave. Um, getting out of that house wasn't easy, even after Father Ray saying, "What are you still doing there?" Get out. Go. Can't you go someplace? You can go to Kathy's mom's house. Go someplace. Go to Lee's mom's house. Did he think you could ever get back in, or did he mean leave and don't ever go back? No, he never. He, I don't think we would have left if he had said, uh, as silly as that sounds, I don't think we would have left if, if he had said to us, no, you're leaving and you're leaving your stuff and you're not coming back and, and forget it. I don't think you could have gotten us out. I think without him choosing the right words, that was one of those things about meeting him that was just so, so extraordinary about him. Um, he later went on and got a degree in, in forensic psychiatry. Uh -huh. he, he just knew what to say to move you, to get you to do what you needed to do even if you were in denial. The only other priest I ever found like that was the Archbishop of Canterbury's exorcist, Reverend Neil Smith. And that was years later when we did a, a book tour for the original book in London, England. We met with him through a reporter for the New York Times. I'm sorry, for the London Times. Her name is Danie Brooke, and she had even published a book on natural childbirth. She was quite a well-known reporter at the time, and she introduced us, made arrangements to meet with Reverend Neil Smith, and he performed for us what some people would call an exorcism. I, I call it more of a blessing, um, but it was a real. It was a rite of separation in the Anglican Church. And it was a separation from the house, from the effects of the house. He, he looked right at Kathy and said, you're still affected by this. Did Father Ray think that if you didn't leave that house, somebody was going to die? Yes, he did. Hold on, George. George Lutz is my guest. He, along with his family, lived the Amityville horror. Tonight you're hearing what really went on in that house. From the high desert, I'm Art Bell.
The Kingdom of Nye, from west of the Rockies at 1-800-618-8255, east of the Rockies, 1-800-825-5033. First-time callers may reach Art at 1-775-727-1222, and the wild card line is open at 1-775-727-1295. To reach Art on the toll-free international line, call your AT&T operator and have them dial 800-893-0903. This is Coast to Coast AM with Art Bell from the Kingdom of Nye. The Amityville Horror, the real thing. George Lutz is here. He, with his family, lived the Amityville Horror, the real thing. That's what we're talking about tonight. We'll get right back to it. Stay right there. Don't fear the Reaper. I I don't fear death, but I do fear evil. Uh, There's a big difference, I think. Now, uh, George... I'm going to revisit this again, and I know you've never really answered this publicly when I asked you about your state of mind through this and whether you ever thought that you were perhaps on the edge or even considering, even flitting through your mind that you might do something bad. Um, There was a story that you took your gun. You had a gun. Yes, I guess, I, I'm right? sorry, I can't get this to go off of speakerphone now, so I'm going to have to talk to you on the speaker. I hope that's Oh, that's really bad. Uh, let's see, just put it on hold and then pick up the phone. Try that. It didn't work. It didn't work? No, sir, for the whole break I've been trying to get this to go off a of speaker. I was on the speaker so I could make sure I got back here on time. Oh, my goodness. Um, all right, uh, maybe it's still following you from Amityville. <laughs> I mean, that shouldn't be. No, this is the first time it's ever happened with us. So I'll tell you what I'm going to do. I'm going to call your number back. Okay, if you hang up on me, that, uh, then I'll just pick it up and, and it won't be on speaker. You got it. Okay, sorry right. about this. That's all right. Maybe something is following us. Who knows? <laughs> no, wait a minute. I don't want to do that. I don't want to do that. Go away. There we go. Well, now isn't that strange? My phone is acting strange too let's try this again all right let's give it a try this is really weird you never know um you never know sometimes just talking about these things uh seems to bring them uh on i've been concerned about that for years let's give it a try here george are we back on the phone Yes, I am. All right. Oh, very good. All right. Uh, let me try again now. Uh, George, again, with regard to your state of mind, um, there was a story that you went to the Amityville Police Department and you turned in your gun uh, saying that you perhaps had an impulse to murder your family. Uh, is that a bogus story, or yeah. did, did you turn in your gun? I had a license to carry a firearm in Nassau and Suffolk counties in upstate New York, but not in the five boroughs of New York City. Right. And the Sullivan Act in New York prohibits that, prohibits it, and it's a felony. Right. So we were going into the city, so the proper thing to do is to drop it off at a local police station. That's what I always did. Uh huh. No, nothing else to that story. So there was nothing about any impulse or any of the rest of it. It was just you dropped it off. Right. That's what you're supposed to do. Were you ever concerned about the fact that you were in possession of a gun? I mean, did that ever give you pause for thought? Well, it's a responsibility, but not in in terms of the house. Mm -hmm. Yeah, okay. That's what I meant. 
and not in terms of the house. No, I had a cash payroll for my business. That's why I had a license to carry. It's not an easy thing to get. I know. Um, all right. You left the house 4 o'clock at one afternoon. You just, enough is enough. You you left. I mean, did you, did you, what did you think at that moment? Did you think, look, I'm leaving this house. I'm never coming back. I'm going to leave everything I own virtually in the house and just get in the car and go? No, absolutely not. Probably would not have left the house. Or would, probably would not. I, I wouldn't have been able to give it up. My boats, motorcycles, everything was there. Yeah, I know. Um, <laughs> a little thing like the 16-millimeter movies of my whole family. I had just gotten them from my mom so that I could put them together and, and, and make a family movie from the time we were little kids. Mm -hmm. All of that kind of stuff. I mean, mm -hmm. It just goes on and on and on. The, uh, no, we were going to Kathy's mom's to stay there at Father Ray's direction, suggestion, and that was the mission. Just get, just leave the house with the boys, a couple changes of clothes, and go. Get the dog and go. Mm -hmm. So that's what we did. It was the, the world became very small there. You didn't want to go out, and leaving the house was a problem. Um, and so to venture someplace, you had to, like, form it in your mind. I, I didn't go to the office anywhere near as often as I had before this. I mean, before I'd go, you know, six days a week, sometimes seven. I'd be lucky to show up three times a week while I was living in that house. Really? Really? So it was having a profound psychological effect on you. It changed everyone's point of view about life and what was important. When Kathy always described the house as charming, and then she thought about it after we left and said, yeah, it really was charming. It really charmed her. Huh. Um, so you intended what then? Uh, when you left, uh, you were going to come back. In other words, you thought you would come back eventually. Oh, yes, and for... Let's say the first week out of the house, the hardest thing for me was to drive past that exit and go on to Cavie's mom's house. All my stuff is there. And keep going, yeah. And so, there were a couple times when it was, a, it was a real struggle to just mentally keep going to Cavie's mom's house and not stop and check on my stuff. So, George, why didn't you go back? What stopped you? I went back once with another psychic that's, his name is Dr. Heffernan. Um, he said that he cleared the house. He said that we would, Kathy didn't come with me, uh, it was a Sunday afternoon. He had a little girl with him, he went into trance, he had someone else with him as well. Mm -hmm. And he said we would smell violets and know that the house was, was cleared. I didn't smell them, I wasn't convinced and that was the last time I was there. So when, when Laura DeDeo found the Warrens and got them to come down, she had wanted to get Hans Holzer to come, and he was busy at the time. He, he went to the house later. Uh, I met with them, gave them the key, but I would not go in the house. Yeah, I heard that. that you the idea was to get the house fixed. When they, t when they tell me the house is fixed, then I'll you know, go back, but not until... And when Ed Warren said this is, and he wanted, you know, they went in, Ed and Lorraine and, and Laura Dale went in the house, and Ed said he wanted to put more people together and come back with a team. And we invited in the people from Duke University, from the Psychical Research Institute there. 
And, you know, Mary maybe didn't make it clearer earlier this evening. She had her own school where she taught psychic in Connecticut. And after leaving the house, she moved to Florida. She up and left. The house affected her, her life so much uh, that, well, they came in with the team and they all met and gave, you know, they still had the key. And it was like, okay, go do what you're going to do. And when Ed came back afterwards and said, I'm not going back, I I can't do this, and you're going to have to get a, an exorcist to come in and exercise the house. He's going to have to say mass in the house, mm-hmm. and basically he'll be putting his life on the line to do it. Uh, how do you go and ask someone to do that for a house? Yeah. So then we were then the idea started to settle in that we're we're stuck here now. Um, we've got this. We've got everything there. I've still got my business, and we're living in Kathy's mom's house, but life can't continue this way. Was there a, was there a profound change when you moved to uh, out of the, to your relative's house? I mean, did was there a profound relief? Was it obviously at that point over, or was something still with you? No, it kept going on. It kept on, but it was different. Um, Kathy turned into the old woman again in front of her mom which then gave a, a witness that was different from just me. Sure. Kathy and I, uh, when we took the polygraph test years later with Chris Gugas, one of the things we wanted to make sure that got covered in the test was, is it true that you levitated at your mom, at Kathy's mom's house after leaving the house in Emmyville? Yes, we did. And we levitated together that time, and that was a pleasant experience. That was not scary or frightening. We were talking to each other, and we were in the bedroom, um, and we shared a little single bed there, a little cot. Um, but that wasn't that wasn't an unpleasant experience by any means. Uh, George, does Kathy uh, still talk about this or not? She did for the History Channel two years ago. Right now, even getting up is a real problem for her physically. Mm-hmm. Uh, but there's eight hours of tape that a MPH has that we did that interview side by side. So I would have to say yes, of course. When the the current owners of that house uh, now say that nothing is going on, that they believe the house is clear and everything's just spiffy and okay, do you buy that? I'm glad that they're able to say that, and uh, I have no reason to think otherwise. I'm not there. I haven't been back there in 25 years. Uh Whatever's going on for them is, is is their business. They knew what they were buying when they bought it. Well, by then they certainly did. We gave it back to the bank. Couldn't stomach the idea of selling it to another family. You know that's that's another thing that I think the audience should understand. There have been allegations over the years that this was a hoax, that some was some big money making affair on your part. Um, so you you lost the house. You had to give the house back to the bank, and while people have made millions, I guess, on the book and the movie and whatever all else has come out about Amityville, uh, the History Channel, I, I forget, or, or ABC, I can't recall which one, said, look, the, um, uh, the Lutzes uh, may have made a grand total of $300,000, minus, no doubt, attorney's fees and a lot of other stuff. No, so, I think the 300000 would uh, so would be the spendable after the taxes and... All the rest. And even after attorneys. Yeah, sure. Yeah. The, the, there have been a number of lawsuits about this over the years. The, 
what what happened is we moved out in January of '76. We bought it in November, so 28 days later when we moved out, which is a, like a full cycle of the moon, um, which I don't know whether that matters or not. But the we we kept we eventually I sold my business. I put it up for um, sale in the. Long Island, in the New York State Surveyor's Civil Engineering Magazine, and the first buyer bought it. We wrote up a contract right then and there between the two of us. Um, a couple days later, his attorney and my attorney put it into a formal language, transferred the ownership. Uh, my grandfather had died during that time, and some of his furniture that my mom and, and my aunts did not want from his house, we got some of that furniture, and... I had one motorcycle that I managed to hold on to and salvage from the whole thing. A couple people went in on Easter Sunday for us and got my grandfather's chest back out, which was uh, a bit, just about all that we were able to get out of the house. We donated the food to the Salvation Army, and hmm. that was it for that. In On Mother's Day of 1976, we landed in San Diego on a plane. We gave... Gave the car away. I, one of the last office cars that I had um, gave it to the guy that uh, was at the ticket place where you show up at JFK and said, "Here, you know, here's the keys, here's the title." Oh we my don't God! And you were really cutting all ties, weren't you? Oh, it was gone. Yeah, you bet. I had one car still there that we had bought. We got rid of the van because it developed a problem that wouldn't go away. Um, so I had bought a, a 1973 Thunderbird, a used car, um, that we used. For, and then I left that at Father Ray's rectory, and we went on out to San Diego. And we got off the plane there, and we had hotel reservations up in Del Mar, and we stayed at the Del Mar Inn for a couple of weeks, and uh, Cavi found a condo for us to rent over in La Jolla, and we stayed there for a while, and then... I went back to get the car, and meanwhile, Kathy had found a house out in Tierra Santa, and we moved there and rented a house for a couple of years. Mm -hmm. And then eventually we bought a house up in uh, Carlsbad. And at this point, uh, do you think the effect of what had happened to you was gone or still in some way with you? I kind of always looked at it like it had a half-life. Uh, I eventually came to believe that the half-life wasn't necessarily the same as it would have been for something radioactive, but that as time went on, it would... It would go away. It would get less. It would get less. There were many times when we really made an effort not to blame everything that went wrong in our lives on, uh, the, house. on the house. Yeah. And so we would be asked and would say, yeah, it, you know, it, it appears to be over. It's over. You know, um, for us, it's gone. And then so, so many other things would go wrong. Uh, I'll give you an example. When, the, we, when we left New York, we didn't have a book contract. We had a... Weber, DeFeo's attorney, had asked us to sign a book contract with him, and we refused because he was because of all the this was a really thick contract, and it was very disturbing. Um, this was a guy that was trying to get us to donate the house to his corporation, and then take lie detector tests. And if we failed the lie detector tests, then we were going to give him the house anyway, and everything else plus. He was going to get to say what we did with the rest of our lives with regard to the story, and and it was just beyond belief. Plus, he was going to pay to fail five percent of proceeds for murdering his family. So, a friend of ours hooked us up with Tam Mossman, who's the editor for Jane Roberts' books, the Seth Speaks books, uh, that Prentice Hall had published, and 
Tam Mossman knew Jay Anson and had suggested him. We met with Jay Anson. We spoke with him. We gave him um, the research materials we had done on the house and some tapes that Kathy and I had done uh, just to undo this. We were sitting around talking about it at Kathy's mom's house afterwards, over the weeks after we had left the house, and said, look, we're not going to sit down and be interviewed about this. You can do what you can from the tapes, and then we'll try to correct whatever you write or help you out with that, but we're just not going to relive this. We've done it once, and we're not doing it again. We did it for the tapes. We went to California, and a year and a half later, as the end of August in 1977, is when we actually had a book contract. Then, in that, right after that, Anson sold the rights for the uh, movie rights to CBS without our permission. He just went ahead and did it. Mm-hmm. And then uh, AIP found out about American International Pictures, and what they did was they uh, went and got the rights from CBS and came to us and said, we're going to make a movie. And we said, how are you going to do that? You don't have our permission to do that, and it's our story. And so we had to renegotiate all of that, and in the process of that, then we were finally able to get some control back over what happened with the story in the future. Not then, but in the future. So we got what's known as the sequel rights, which is very rare. You just don't do that, and it was just one of those things that just happened to work out right. Uh, who was ever thinking of sequels then? Oh, of course. The uh, Anson did a deal with us that it was about eight... Nine years later that we discovered that he and Myron Saland, who he had worked for at the time at Professional Films, they became the producers for the movie, and so far they've made about $22 million personally between the two of them. So in other words, a lot of people have made a lot of money. Well, Anson and Saland, from this, the author of the original book, they, he made at least $10 million for himself. Millions and millions, and yes, you, you cleared right. maybe 300000 We cleared after taxes and lawyers, yeah. So we got the sequel rights, so no one can do anything with the Avenue Horror Story in the future without our permission. Mm-hmm. Which may, uh, I guess, one can hope will turn out well for you. Who knows? Well, my attitude about it has always been one that not necessarily everyone um, understands or agrees with, but it's one I came to on my own, and I'm, uh, and that is that whatever exposes this stuff happens, and, what, and we didn't know that. And we learned that from the people that we were fortunate enough to meet along the way. And people don't talk about it. And we can understand why they don't, because we understood there'd be controversy and we understood there'd be naysayers. And Oh, there's always those, George. I've had them all the time I've been doing this program. Stay right where you are. We'll be right back. When we get back, we'll try and pick up a few uh, questions from all of you out there. You've got the numbers. We're here. It's 2 a.m. I'm gonna 
West of the Rockies, dial 1-800-618-8255. East of the Rockies, 1-800-825-5033. First-time callers may reach Art at 1-775-727-1222. Or use the wild card line at 1-775-727-1295. To reach Art on the toll-free international line, call your AT&T operator and have them dial 800-893-0903. This is Coast to Coast. A.M. with Art Bell on the Premier Radio Networks. It is. George Lux is my guest. He, with his family, lived the real Amityville horror. In a moment, we'll get back to him. If you have a question, uh, that's what our phone lines are for. So, uh, it's now or never. I'm intensely... Uh, curious about something, George. Uh, you contacted me, and you obviously then wanted to do this interview. I wonder why. You're going off the air, and I never have talked to you. You <laughs> have true. the greatest respect around the, the country, oh, that's around very the world, kind of about the, these kinds of things. Well, I, I surely uh, appreciate your having contacted me. And the, there's another side to this, I, I, and you and I spoke of this. Yes. Um, the, the part about Father Malachi Martin was very important to me. I haven't been able to verify it with your archives. It's just my inability to find the right program when he said that. And when he exposed it for what it was, and, and that was very important to me. But also, there, over the years, there have been some, I don't know another way to put it, real loudmouth people about you know calling this a hoax, and it's not a hoax. And I've gotten to the point where I'm really tired of even hearing that. Yeah, I never, I never uh, thought it was a hoax, George, for what that's worth. It, it's the kind of thing that has hurt my family for a long time, and I've gotten to a place mentally or spiritually with it all that just says, you know, uh, bring it on, because this is what happens. This is the truth. These things happen, and I understand why people don't talk about them when they do happen mm -hmm. to them. Uh, in my own opinion... I would I would do fictional books, fiction books based on fact and factual books, anything at all to expose the existence of this stuff, to get people to read about it and question it. All right. Uh, I've got somebody else you might know on the phone. Joel Martin. Joel was the uh, Long Island correspondent for the Associated Press at the time of the DeFeo massacre, the first reporter actually to arrive at the scene of those murders. Uh, Joel, hi. Thank you for, for getting to us. You're on the air, Joel. Oh, good morning, Art. Good morning. Thank hi, you. Joel. Joel. Time to talk to me. Yes, hello, George. I haven't. Uh, you and I have really never met. No, we we were on the History Channel special together, and we talked on the phone years ago. But somehow we kept missing each other. We <laughs> were on the Lou Gentilly show. At the yes, same I time. was on the Lou Gentilly show recently as well. Yeah, and as you know, 
I was the first reporter there that horrible night in November of 1974, and I saw one of the dead bodies and later was questioned by the DA and then, you know, became involved with the, the, the side of the story that uh, called it a hoax, as you just uh, referred to. And, uh, I, you know, had years and years of listening to Stephen Kaplan debate the Webbers and, uh, I'm, forgive me, the Warrens about whether it was true or not. And I really have not the same opinion as Steve Kaplan has that it was a, a, a hoax. And I don't believe that at all. What I wanted you to do, I was hopeful, was to clear up some of the questions I had because when I was there the first night in 74, I never thought the story would continue. Then five years later, I had that exclusive radio interview with Bill Weber, and he contradicted a lot of what you said, or at least, you know, raised doubts about it. Joel, Joel, what do you want cleared up? What I'd like cleared up is what George Lutz's opinion is of what Kaplan said, which was counter to what George said, and what Bill Weber said, which took issue with what George said. And I, I don't want to argue it. I would just love to hear George's opinion, simply because we haven't meant to talk about it. All right. George? Actually, you can add a new one to that, someone that calls herself Geraldine DeFeo as well. And I understand, oh, yeah. you know, that she... Keys to the Rockies called toll-free 1-800-825-5033. That he interviewed you recently. He met me. He, was, he, he and Geraldine did both meet me. That's right. Did they interview you? Well, they, you know, they, they asked questions, frankly. It wasn't a formal interview where we sat down and they, you know, said, well, let's take notes. It wasn't the kind of thing a reporter does. But, yeah, they, they definitely questioned me. And, they definitely and is she someone that you knew back then? Was, was uh, he? Geraldine. It's interesting about Geraldine. Geraldine claims to be married to, uh, to Ronnie DeFeo. Yes. Geraldine's physical appearance today, to be kind, is not anywhere near what it looked like back in the 1970s. Now, I don't know what her role was back in the 1970s, but if you ask me, do I recognize a girl who looks something like that back around the time when this happened? Yeah, she does look like her. But what she did or what her role was, you would know. And those are the kind of things I was curious about getting answered since I never believed or, or I, I never thought I'd fall into the story, though, so heavily. Did, did you ever hear back then that she was married to him? Back then? Yes. No, no. Nothing like that? No. No one ever knew that? No. There was, there was no, no, never brought up in the trial, not by Weber, no one? No. So what? for all practical purposes in the 70s, she didn't exist? For all practical purposes, there was a girl who looked like that, but in terms of the story she tells, no, I never heard that story in the 70s. I never heard that story until much, much more recently. But, uh, I, you know, I recall the face, but that that doesn't necessarily suggest that what she says is, you know, exactly what happened. Well, Joel, you've obviously followed this story for all these years. Oh, God, yeah. Are you, uh, I mean, how do you feel? I mean, do you think something happened in that house that took the Lutzes out of it? Yeah, you know what I, what I think, frankly, I... I did not have the privilege of interviewing Malachi Martin more than one time, and mm -hmm. I know you did many, many times. Yes, I did. Yeah, and I, I, but I, I tend to agree with this concept that you mentioned before. And I don't know if you're referring to your own or Malachi Martin's. I've been listening to it since this began. It's, it's fascinating, by the way. I, I'm thoroughly enjoying it. Um, I think that if you say there's good, you have to say there's evil. Mm -hmm. And I do think that if you fool around with things that you don't understand you could be fooling around with things that are evil. And do you think that's what happened to the Lutzes? Yeah, absolutely. All right, all right, Joel, thank you. And do you, uh, I'm going to go ahead and disconnect there. Do you want to go ahead and address anything, uh, George? Do you want to? Sure, I'd like to uh, deal with what 
Joel brought up, which was about Stephen Kaplan and, and William Weber. Yeah, fire away. They're individuals that came to us in different ways. Um, we sought out Weber, found out that he was the attorney for DeFeo, and so we contacted him through a friend of ours, Mimi Vetter, who uh, worked at as a receptionist, I believe it was, or an assistant of some kind at his um, dentist's office. She got a hold of him for us. We talked with him on the phone, told him that we had lived in the house, um, that we believed we had information that would help get him help of some kind, mm-hmm. help get DeFeo help, and... We agreed to meet with him, and he came over to Kathy's mom's a, a couple of Saturdays, and we sat and we talked. At one time, he introduced to us a, a fellow who was supposed to be a criminologist who eventually did a, an article that was unauthorized that was published in Good Housekeeping magazine and another one in the New York Mirror, I think it was, in the Sunday News Mirror. Uh, Weber was, is a slick guy. He's a guy that will say what he wants to to fit the the moment. It became... Obvious to him when we left for California and had our attorney, Frank Giorgio, notice him formally that our story was ours and we were not going to do a contract with him about a book and we mm-hmm. didn't want anything more to do with that. We weren't interested in 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 dealing with him. And he, they wrote back and acknowledged that. And then he goes and he gets um, Paul Hoffman to do this good housekeeping article. And, and Pernus Hall wasn't even going to publish the book after that was done. It wasn't that the article was inaccurate. The problem was that that was done without our permission under less than honorable circumstances, to say the least. I mean, this guy was represented to us as a criminologist helping Ronald DeFeo get mental help, and instead he's a writer trying to make money for Weber. Yeah, still, I, I can't for one second imagine that you would have two seconds of interest in helping, helping uh, in any way or... Or, or feeling compassion for DeFeo unless you understood a very profound reason why you should feel that compassion. And that could have only come from your experience in the house. I mean, where this, else? I mean, and this guy killed that. I mean, he just, he just literally took that possibility of, of DeFeo not sitting in jail for no, and I, I shouldn't say no reason, but for no good purpose. I mean, he belongs in jail. Don't misunderstand. But a, a mental jail, one where... He can get some help. Yeah, I understand, and we're so short on time. First time caller line, very quickly, uh, you're on the air with George Lutz. Do you have a question? Hello? Going once, going twice, gone. Wild card line, you're on the air with George Lutz. Do you have a question? Art? Yes. Um, okay, Has, I want to ask him if the proof of uh, this personal proof of evil in his life mm-hmm. has resulted in a in a... A really a personal proof of goodness. I mean... Oh, yeah, well, that's a good question. I, I, I think we answered it the other way around. Uh, yeah. But, but, but really, George, uh, the fact that you experienced that evil uh, validates the fact there's this good as well, right? Father Ray taught me something very interesting that um, at first almost sounded sacrilegious in a way. It sounded weird. He said, you know, the thing about prayer is that it makes God say yes when he had said no all along. Um, that answers it, I guess. East of the Rockies, you're on there with George Lutz. Hi. Hi. Uh, do you think that uh, your wife, you mentioned that she looked almost like a crone uh, for yes. once or twice or several times. Do you think, did she realize that that change was taking place, or was that just in your eyes that that happened? No, no she realized that. 
she could look in the mirror, and when her mom was there, it was even it was worse. Yeah, remember, sir, uh, her mother saw this as well. It wasn't just George. Right? Yes. Okay, thank you. You're uh, welcome. You're very welcome. Uh, West of the Rockies, you're on the air with George Lutz. Do you have a question? Yes, hello. Hello. I, um, Ardell, this is my last farewell. I'm a great fan. Thank you. God bless you, and uh, this is probably the last time I'll be ever talking to you for the rest of my life. So God bless you, and I hope and pray that your back will heal. Thank you. And First and foremost, uh, I heard a rumor that the property has a history of uh, some kind of Indian burial ground or some kind of... Oh, yes. Of, of, ...that the ground itself was either sacred or it had some kind of Indian connotation. I actually, I actually heard a rumor that uh, some Indian artifact or skull even had been found at that property. Is there any uh, truth in any of that, George, that you're aware of? When we first visited the Amityville Historical Society, we obtained maps and, and all kinds of information that we turned over to Anson that included that area as having been a place where there were Indians buried and that they were, they're insane. The ones they didn't know what to do with were, there was even a rumor at the time and printed in some of the stuff in the Historical Society that said they were chained to trees and left to die there. Not the nicest of circumstances by any means. All right. When the, his, when the Amityville um, story was published, all of a sudden the Historical Society um, secreted that information away. We've, through other people, have been in contact with, with previous curators that know of this and are willing to talk about it. Hmm. But as far as the town is concerned and the, the Amityville Historical Society, no, that, did, that was never true. What happened later was, and, and I was still to, talking about some of, of Weber, Weber invited Hans Holzer to come in and investigate the house. Mm -hmm. Now, Holzer is on shows like Joel Martin saying, you know, this whole thing's a hoax. But then he's calling up Hans Holzer to go in and verify that the house is haunted. Pretty weird stuff when you put the two things together. Why is this guy double-dealing this way? How does the town of Amityville now handle all, the, all of this? I mean, since... Well, they're not going to shut Holzer up, and Holzer says, without a doubt, you know, what happened there with Ethel Johnson Myers when she went in trance was there's an Indian chief, and he's quite angry, and he's not going to go away until some things are restored back the way he thinks they should be. Now, I don't know about that. I wasn't there. I didn't own the house at the time. Weber made arrangements to go in with the bank because we'd given it back to the bank by then. Uh, the, the historical society has basically covered it up, from what I can determine, from what anyone else can determine since then. In your opinion. So, um, but, but now the, the town of Amityville, I mean, they must have a chamber of commerce there at Amityville. How do they... Well, we've never been their favorite people of that's for sure. No, huh? <laughs> All right. Uh, wild Card Line, you're on the air with uh, George Lutz. Hello. Hi. Hi. Lee, I just want to, you're obviously right about giving Art the respect he's due. I'm honored he took my call. I just want to say, Lee, this whole experience is obviously very personal to you. But as I heard, and I listened very intently to the Art's whole interview with you, I was kind of shocked when you got to the part that you said you and Kathy weren't together anymore. And I was wondering if you can say when you divorced and why, if it had anything to do with this or her turning into an old woman. It just 
that just seemed kind of... Her um, turning into an old woman didn't have anything to do with it. Yeah, but did the half-life of what happened uh, and, and still uh, uh, maybe uh, in some way present, did that... Do you think that had anything to do with it, George? The reasons we got divorced are really personal. We went in separate directions with regard to our own personal lives and religion. Uh, our main interest, and, and we still talk, uh, is the kids and of course their lives. And, and we're both very proud of, of our kids, all five of them. And, and we went on and had two more children after we left. Um, three of my daughters today are ministers. Uh, Isn't that something? I, we couldn't be prouder of them. And, and so the reasons we got divorced, they're our own. They're our own reasons. They're not something for the public. But um, we we really just did go in separate ways. And you don't think any of uh, there was any residual effect that... I mean, sometimes it's really hard to, to know... What drives something, but you think uh, you, you think it had n really nothing to do with it? Is that right? No, it's not right. I I will so, say this much: we disagreed so. about exposing the house. In that, my my own thoughts are, and my own belief is that whatever exposes what went on there, whatever gets people to talk about this as a real problem that exists in the world, that's shoved under the carpet every moment that it possibly can be, and in all kinds of ways, and all with all kinds of confusion, it should be exposed. As far as Kathy is concerned, she, her point is that she only wants to deal with the non-fiction part and does not believe that fiction also helps to do that. So we differ right there, and, and that wasn't the reason we got divorced, but when it comes to the house and disagreeing about some things afterwards, then that's part of it. So there's really no part of all this that has not affected your life, is there? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I guess you could say that. Um, Even through your cold and all that, you've still got a good sense of humor, George. Listen, we're out of time. I uh, really don't know how to thank you for coming and giving me this interview toward the end of, uh, of my time on the air, permanently anyway. And So, George, thank you. Mark, thank you for having me on. And, and anyone that's interested in any more that, that they would like to find out about this, the Lou Gentilly Show, LouGentilly.com, has an archive up for a whole Amityville week that we did uh, earlier this year. So that might help also. All right, my friend. Thank uh, you, Art. I, I appreciate the interview. I appreciate uh, how candid you have been, and take care, my friend. I wish you well, and I'll send you what you asked for. <laughs> Thank you. Bye-bye. Good night. Uh, good night, George. Good night, all. And here's Crystal to take us out from the high desert. Midnight in the desert Shooting stars across the sky This magical journey Will take us on a ride Filled with the longing Searching for the truth Will we make it till tomorrow? Will the sun shine on you?